You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Guardians of the Galaxy Edition. Hey, everybody. Should I have said wounded, not wounded warrior, what a broken... Broken, edi- broken found family edition? Beautifully broken edition. Mm. Big heart and edition. I don't know. We'll talk about it. We're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy. Volume 3, is it the last gasp of Marvel? The last gasp of happiness in this Marvel thing? Or is it just a good James Gunn movie? Or is it a terrible? Or what? It's the first gasp of hope. S stands for hope. Franchises are built on hope. (laughs) (laughs) I I have some conflicted feelings about this film, but it is a good hang. There, that's my take. All right. It's a good hang. (laughs) It's Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. It's been a while since we've talked about one of these Marvel things. I think the last time we talked about it was uh, Shang-Chi, Legend of the Rings. Ah, depressing. Maybe, yeah, that was depressing. But a while since we've cared about the Marvel thing. Well, why don't we do some Marvel, a little quick trip down Marvel memory lane and get some Marvel baggage. But first we should know who's carrying that baggage. Well, it's me, it's Nathan, your humble and obedient, beautifully broken host and we've got the man who he's got a huge heart but he also kills people all the time <laughs> he's ben Silzer, the destroyer the destroyer yeah ben the destroyer mm. and why don't you introduce the man that's what are other elements that these guardian folk bring i don't know i'll let you do it it's it's pastor jake Minsel. He doesn't podcast with his mind. He podcasts with his heart. Ah, uh, right. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, it's not about the hands that, that, that little cameo from Michael uh, Rooker. Rooker, yeah. yeah. That was great. That just felt like Michael Rooker's my... I'm James Gunn. Michael Rooker's my friend. I want him to get paid. That's what Nathan Fillion was all about. He'd been trying to get Nathan Fillion into the MCU for all three movies. There's no reason not to have Nathan Fillion a long well, he time wa- ago. He wanted him... I think he wanted him for, if I'm not mistaken, he wanted him to be like Adam Warlock or some kind of actual awesome character that he wanted to introduce. I mean, he's a, he'd make a plausible Star Lord, actually, if you're just going back to square one. Of course. And he kept, and he kept getting denied. Like Feige wouldn't let him have Fillion for any kind of major role. I think Adam Warlock is the one that he wanted him for. Hmm. And so I think there's a little bit of... There was some fun passive aggression towards Marvel. Yeah. That whole el- <laughs> that whole elevator scene where they were lamely explaining uh-huh. at great length <laughs> what happened in Avengers yeah. while Nebula was rolling her eyes. Yeah, yeah that's more or less what happened. <laughs> that's pretty, yeah, that pretty That was pretty good. Yeah. I think maybe, if I'm right about that, part of the way they handled Adam, he handled Adam Warlock and the Nathan Fillion cameo was all just peace out, suckers. Yep. <laughs> That makes sense. I thought Nathan Fillion was pretty funny. Okay, well, let's do some. All right, folks, here's what I was going to go. We're going to do Marvel baggage, mm. and we'll try not to spend too much time on that. That could be three hours if we wanted it to be. And at some point, I want to talk about the Guardians, who they are, where they come from, because I think this is our first time reviewing a Guardians film. We certainly talked yeah. a lot about Guardians 2. It is the... It's a placeholder for us. It is a placeholder for us. It is the movie that really just shoved everything. It sort of, let me just start on my baggage. So I liked the first Guardians movie, but felt a little, we'll do Guardians baggage first, then we'll do Marvel baggage. Okay. So I I liked the first Guardians movie, but I felt a little uneasy about it. And then Guardians 2 helped me pinpoint not just my unease with Guardians 1, but my unease with 
action filmmaking today. And this was around the time of BLM and all this stuff. And just all the othering that happens in our culture, all the, they are not like me. And so they are the enemy and they are inhuman and they must be destroyed. This is how political discourse works. This is how Marxism works. This is how our world is largely operating, how our children are being taught to think. And Guardians Volume 2 is a really egregious example. It has this long scene where we're going to set up these Ravengers as just like the monsters that are pouring beer on baby Groot and torturing everybody just so that we can enjoy turning the tables and murdering them. And I remember sitting in, and was it murder or was it? I don't know. But the reason I use the word murder is because that's the glee that we're meant to feel is like, yay, I'm killing all these people. It's great. Oh, look at cute baby Groot. He's going to chase down the guy that poured beer on him and throw him off a ledge. And it's like an adorable, I my angry baby gets angry like that kind of moment. And it's just that whole scene feels really sick to me. And it helps me pinpoint the sickness that James Gunn has and that our culture has at large. And we've talked about that a million times. It's just really, you don't, think about it maybe necessarily because of the way that the movie works on you emotionally, especially through baby Groot. But one of the things that guardians Two especially plays with is the moral ambiguity of both sides. So you get out of guardians one and like the final scene is what do you got? you going to do something good, something bad, a little bit of both, a little bit of both. Right. So like they've, they're bad people who've come together and their hands kind of forced and they're like the only people who can save the galaxy. And so are they going to be the good guys or are they just going to be self-interested and they decide against all odds to be the good guys. Right. And so there's some kind of like redemption and hope for this ragtag crew of bad guys. So guardians two happens and it's like, yeah, we're still bad guys. Everybody's still a bad guy, but we're on our own little personal redemption quests. And Peter's dealing with his daddy issues and, Gamora is dealing with her sister issues. and See, I think you actually helped me put my finger on something just now because you said moral ambiguities. I think one of the reasons I like Guardians 3 is because it's the first movie that actually feels like maybe it has some moral ambiguities. James Gunn thinks he's doing moral ambiguities in part two, but actually what makes the movie feel so sick is that he's entirely smug on the Guardian side. He thinks it's yeah. awesome that Rocket just blows people away. Right. And says, I want to kill some guys. I, you know, I had a bad morning. I'm a grumpy guy. So it makes me feel good to just kill people. Like James Gunn actually really enjoys that about his characters. Yeah. So he thinks he's playing with moral ambiguities, but actually everybody's just a bad guy. Right. And that's the thing. And so the only thing that makes it good that we're killing people is we're Team Rocket for some reason, or we're Team Baby Groot, because how can you not be? Yeah. And so when Rocket and uh, Yandu, who has just been a bad guy mm -hmm. up until this point. He's just been un unambiguously a bad guy up until the point where he has the power to enact the vengeance we want to see on behalf of Baby Groot on everybody else. You know, now it's cool and we got to kick on the music and just kill the crap out of people. And it's one thing to see that in a Quentin Tarantino film. I don't like it there, but at least that's designed for ironic hipster adults to go and enjoy violence and know that's what they're paying for. But I felt really bad sitting with a bunch of 10-year-olds that just wanted to see a talking raccoon and some bright, colorful action as they were being catechized in this whole sort of way of looking well, at the world. Well, that's been part of the difficulty of navigating the MCU altogether is like, are these 
they all have PG-13 ratings, right? They all have PG-13 ratings because of violence, mm-hmm. but they're really kids' movies, yeah. or are they? And then Guardians has always pushed, been like the tip of the spear of pushing that envelope. But even as far back as Iron Man 1, I remember some of the discourse being, eh, this feels a little bit more violent. Tony's a little bit more ruthless. He's just and blowing sexual. guys up. Yeah. yeah, it's also sexual. But just in terms of the violence, actually, even in our old, like, dark, quote unquote, Batman movies, we didn't see as much of Batman being that ruthless. Like, Iron Man just kills. And Iron Man sort of quietly crossed that line in a way that it just sort of casually did that. But you actually don't see that as much in your 90s sort of action movies. Unless, again, it's an adult, yeah, well, like a Michael I, Bay's The Rock. Everybody's <clears throat> killing each other. But that's you know that's what you're paying for. You yeah, don't the, know that's what you're paying for when you go to a superhero movie. Tony, Tony no. Stark, part of what they then have to do with Tony is deal with the fact that he actually has been the bad guy. Like he's the arms dealer. He's the guy who supplies both sides and profits off both sides. He gets stuck in a cave with a bunch of brown people and has to kill his way out. And we don't feel bad because they're other. Right. But he's the bad guy. They have reasons to hate him. He kills his way out. And then he just spends the rest of his life trying to figure out how to be the good guy. And we're just supposed to accept him. And a lot of the villains don't. Right. But that's it. I would say... I don't like that they sort of quietly crossed the line and, oh, you know, he just kills people randomly. You know, he just blows up a tank. Uh, presumably people died. Like that sort of thing bugs me a little bit in those movies. But by and large, the story that they're telling is one that we can track and that makes sense. And our sympathies are where they should be. Like we want Tony to get better. The problem with... We want him to see what he's done and we want him to go on a redemption quest to right the wrongs that he's done and to right the wrongs of the world. Right. The problem He has the power to do that. Guardians, even in this movie, which as we'll talk about, is I think is relatively gentle compared to the others. And maybe James Gunn's had some therapy and gotten a little bit of this out of his system and Suicide Squad and Peacemaker. But it's still just so like, all right, kill everybody. Like that's a line in the movie. Yep. And that's just not what we're expected to think that's normative behavior for our heroes. And it's like, actually, that's only normative behavior for a James Gunn hero. That's not mm-hmm. that's that's not what we want to see from Marvel comic book heroes. Maybe it is what we want to see, but it's not what we should want to see. And it's not there's he makes sure to get some moments of ruthlessness in killing that one, you know, guy that thinks he's spared and yeah. stuff like that. A lot um, of stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of stuff yeah. like that. And then he has the audacity, spoiler alert, to to do the old, we're not going to do the killing blow on the villain, yep. even though presumably I think we're going to leave him to die. And also we just killed the crap out of a thousand other guys, but somehow we're making some kind of moral point here by not pulling the trigger on the one guy that maybe arguably deserves to just be executed. Okay. Yay. Mm-hmm. Thanks, movie. Anyway. I guess I dived too quickly into Guardian's baggage, but that really is my baggage with Guardians. I find James Gunn an incredibly appealing personality. I like him as a filmmaker. I think he's the one Marvel guy that really has a visual sense, an action sense. Like This is a real filmmaker. He writes characters. He writes scripts that Uh have plots. So I like and admire a lot about him. And there is even something about his brokenness that I find appealing. But I'm uncomfortable with it's in this context and always have been. And I think Guardians has been such a placeholder for us in discussions about othering and 
what modern kind of storytelling does in terms of dehumanizing the enemy. Um, and you just can never forget that if these movies are primarily made for a sort of liberal, affluent kid, then the person that's supposed to have the arrow go through them is you. I mean, yep. it's us. It's There's movies like we've talked about The Matrix, where the Wachowskis are so intentionally playing with the thrill of that. They want to go out of their way to say, these are real human beings that you're about to massacre, but they are the enemy. Like they make mm-hmm. it, they're they are being wildly irresponsible, but they are making a very conscious choice to do that in the first Matrix. And then they pull back from it actually in the sequels, but mm-hmm. the first Matrix gets some of its juice out of dehumanizing the enemy um, in a very intentional, very 90s, very sick kind of a way. And why am I saying that? I guess just because in most of the discourse about this, it's not so much that people are intentionally setting out to make that point to, or to do this, to play with these things, to ride that line, to get a sick thrill. It's just that they, you know, you, you see Black Widow and it's like, well, you just othered a huge group of people and you don't even care. It's just how action movies are written now. But James Gunn is a little bit more like the Wachowskis and that he really enjoys and gets some of his juice out of playing with these very things. Ben, what's your mm-hmm. Guardians baggage? I saw Guardians in the theater, like all of us, I guess. And I remember kind of liking it and never wanting to go back to it. And I think some of my discomfort was what you were saying, but I didn't articulate that to myself. Just like, yeah, it's kind of fun. It's kind of clever. It was visually cool, but it didn't really do it for me. I didn't really invest in the characters, didn't really like the humor, didn't even really like the action that much. I think I would actually be a lot more favorable now if I went back, just as a piece of filmmaking, you know? Mm-hmm. Part of that is James Gunn finding his feet in not making Marvel Machine-style action. Obviously, even the first Guardians is several cuts above all the other stuff coming out at the time from the Marvel Machine. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it, it's true, but I was still like, eh, I just don't like this. And yeah, something about even the Yandu scene in that one where, he, oh good, Yandu gets to kill a bunch of unambiguous bad guys. It's just, this is just, it just likes the killing. Mm-hmm. Like this guy just likes the killing. That's what he likes. So I remember that all the time. I, there, there's, I went back and watched a couple of clips from that movie just to jog my memory. Like, what did I like or not like? Or man, I want to see this again now that Guardians 3 is coming out. And I was like, oh yeah, this is mean. <laughs> Like, there's just casual violence all the time. Groot's going to come into the prison and instantly put his tendrils up a guy's nose and then, like, break the guy's nose with his tendrils and there's going to be blood. And it's like, yeah, I remember this now, this edge. So, Guardians 2, I didn't see in the theaters. I saw it. I must have seen it on Disney Plus or something. And I just watched it in bits and pieces. I was like, man, I don't like this movie, but it's kind of compelling. (laughs) <laughs> and then I got to the last 20 minutes. And it's the best last 20 minutes in any, maybe the best 20 minutes period. In, in any, the Marvel Universe. In the Marvel Universe, yeah. yeah it's, it's amazing. And then you go back and you're like, was that earned? And I guess it must have been because otherwise how would it work? But also if you watch any, if you watch those two movies, there's so much sort of, there's a lot of, there's humor that totally connects, but then there's kind of unfunny, just we're being crass right. kind of stuff. Two was more like that than one. Yeah, and two. Yeah, I think one was genuinely funny. One, 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 one. I think most people had the experience. Maybe you didn't, Ben, but I think most people felt about one like we all felt about Dungeons and Dragons. This just feels fresh and funny, and uh, the whole audience is laughing. I've seen all three of these movies with big crowds. One gets tremendous laughs. I don't think my audience really laughed at all for three, and they didn't really laugh much 
for two, which is interesting. I think for both of those, some of the big jokes got spoiled in trailers. I don't know how you guys' audience was. You probably saw it with a smaller. We saw it with a very small audience. Yeah, three. So, mm-hmm. so you don't have a good limits test for that. No. We were probably the loudest laughers in the theater, which is saying something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to dislike and a lot to like. But just going back to those movies, it's like, wow, he has a visual style. Like the ego's planet. Is, I know is that thing's amazing. Yeah, it, it's so cool, and it, Kugler with Wakanda. Wakanda kind of feels like a place. I don't like those movies, but Wakanda felt like a lived-in place. You compare it to like Asgard, or there's so much in the Marvel stuff that just feels like some CGI guys grabbed some cliches off of the shelf and threw them together. And gun movies just don't feel that way, which is wonderful. Kugler doesn't know how to use CG though, not really. Yeah, his action is much. It's just not that great. Yeah, his lamer. action stylings, and unless he's doing something straightforward like a boxing scene, then he understands that. Yeah, but Gunn can make the whole thing like a giant visual cartoon. It's amazing. Yeah, just integrate the special effects and play with it, and make you feel like yeah, this is a good comic book movie. He has a good sense of weight to his characters. I mean, literal weight. Like he yeah. knows how springy and kind of supery to make them, and how. It's a fine line to walk. And how much gravity, like literal gravity, there needs to be. I I think of the scene between the two sisters when they're blowing each other away on Ego's planet in the second movie. And it's so hypercharged and ridiculous. But A, he brings real emotion to it. And B, he knows how to just how much to exaggerate these kinds of characters. Yeah. So I don't know, Jake, baggage. I saw Guardians 1 in theaters in the context of when did that come? What phase was that? Mm. two yeah two was it early two or late two i want to say early 2014 what does that mean well iron man came out what 2010 that was like 2007 no iron man's 2008 so i so the way that i remember everybody feeling at the time i don't remember exactly what phase but i think it felt like marvel was like oh we'd had age of ultron like it felt like things maybe were losing steam and then Guardians really gave it an injection. No, Age of Ultron is a year after is Guardians. It? Okay. Yeah, okay. that's wild. This is not my memory at all, but you got Iron Man 3, Thor the Dark World, Captain America the Winter Soldier comes out the same year as Guardians of the Galaxy after those two movies. Okay. Yeah, but Iron, Iron Man 3 and Thor Dark World. Iron Man 3 is actually not as bad as uh, I love that movie. As people say it is. Yeah. But Thor Dark World is yeah. I actually, I don't know that I agree. I kind of want to go back to it now and see. I remember liking it better than... I enjoyed it in the theater, actually. And then I accepted the discourse that said it was terrible and I've never gone back and I have no idea. But, but you're like, yeah, it's terrible. I just think it's kind of a mess. It depends on whether or not you... To me, I think it depends on whether or not you like the a bunch of Darcy humor and whether or not you think Darcy's hot. And, and that's really like... Otherwise, I, I, the story's a mess. I, I can make no, no comment as to the second, but I do actually like Darcy humor, which I'm embarrassed to admit, but I think that actually probably did <laughs> increase my enjoyment. <laughs> I, of. Think, I think I liked that too. For me, Guardians was just like, oh yeah, the, here's a new thing full of characters that nobody cares about, so nobody has any expectations for. And we're not quite satisfying any itches with or Iron Man, or any of our main cast of characters yet, although the Captain America movie was great. And so Guardians just hit as a breath of fresh air. It's actually going to be funny. It's going to have a different flavor to it. It's going to have a totally different visual style. In our 
main like earthbound movies were going to a more grounded stylistic thing, bringing in the Rousseau brothers. And so it's just going to feel, try to feel more like grounded and realistic and maybe move in more of a documentary born style, you know, for the action and that sort of thing to just, so it felt like it just had an added layer of whimsy and fun to it that I just thought, Hey, this is fun. This is compelling. This is interesting. This is a breath of fresh air. This is kind of exciting. Maybe we can do different, a different kind of storytelling in outer space. Who knows where this will go? And so I just enjoyed the first one and thought it was kind of fun. The villain was lame. Like every Marvel villain is lame. Mm, That's right. The setup for Thanos was lame. Like there's a bunch of things about it that were super lame, but it got me to invest more or less in this or have some interest in this whole totally different style of character. Can you pull together a talking raccoon and a talking tree and green lady and stuff and mm-hmm. and we look at it now with disdain and maybe you guys looked at it with disdain then but James Gunn sort of created the we're going to set our movie to a cool soundtrack of pop songs I mean I like that soundtrack and I got soundtrack thoughts about this soundtrack but that was pretty fun I like that soundtrack he's changed it up you know Mm-hmm. That movie was 70s songs, and then we got 80s songs, and then now we got 90s songs. And Rocket's moving forward with 2000 songs. It's like he, he's tracking and doing his own thing with it, and a bunch of people are imitating it, maybe trying to make it stale for him. But I thought there's a lot that was just innovative and cool and fun mm-hmm. about the way that story was told that bought him a lot of capital to do more of what he wanted in Guardians 2, which was both horrible and awesome. I thought Guardians 2 was all the same things that you guys said, and yet still, in in strictly movie terms, probably the best movie in the MCU, start to finish, in terms of telling an actual emotionally compelling story that stands on its own. But with, with you all, think Volume 2 is? I think just as an actual movie, as a piece of film. Like, there's a lot of things about it that are bad, I, let's take the moral equation out. You guys have already discussed that right, ad yeah. nauseum. I agree with everything you said. But it, it just even as filmmaking, there's some. it has real problems. Like structurally, it's like it's teeters on the edge of being a mess start to finish. But it doesn't really matter. And it tells the best single piece, single volume movie, father-son story that anywhere that you get anywhere in the MCU. And all the other emotion that you get in any other film is not emotion that's created within the film itself. Not really. It's just sort of like plays on your ideas and your imagination and accumulated emotion over the course of multiple films and nostalgia. And it just sort of like plays on and tries to pay some of that off and Infinity War and Endgame. But Yondu is an unlikable character that nobody likes at the start of that movie and is an awesome father figure by the end. And Can you answer, because you just rewatched both of these. Can you yeah. answer a question for me that I've never gone back to verify? Does the continuity of Yondu between one and two actually track, or does it feel as if Gunn decided he wanted to retrofit a really cool father story in part two? It tracks just fine. I think 
I think that there was probably some retrofitting, but it's pulled off smoothly enough that I I think, because, so, so here's a tell. They're already talking about in the first one about how he's soft on Quill. Right. And when Yondu at the very end thinks he's got the infinity stone and he opens it up and finds a troll inside, instead of being angry, he smiles and he puts the troll on his dashboard. Yeah. Which was a set, which was a payoff from earlier in the movie about how he likes to have these little trinkets that he puts on his dashboard. So it's sort of a payoff and it's a, there's a smile there and there's a sense of, yeah, the kid's doing well for himself. He's smart. I've done a good job. So that all that's just sort of there. And then they just kind of double down on it. And the mutiny is, man, you're always soft on this guy. I mean, you could, like, if you wanted to make a defense of the morality of Yondu's thing, it's Yondu's fatherhood that gets him into the bind with all of his men. It's Yondu's commitment to trying to do things right that gets him cornered, actually, as a complicated ravager who was also orphaned and raised by ravagers. Yeah, like Sylvester Stallone's his daddy figure, actually. Right. And he made a mistake and got caught trafficking kids. And then he figured out what was actually happening and what he was doing. He thought he was retrieving this kid's children for him and, or this guy's children for him. And then he realized he was exploiting and destroying them. And then he stopped and saved Peter and tried to raise him as his own as best he could. And all of that is what gets Yondu into trouble with his men and ready to be executed and gets his loyal crew members executed and gets baby Groot tortured. And so if you wanted a moral defense of, which is not the actual text of the movie, right? That's like a, you're reaching pretty far. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But that's, I think that's what Gunn would say. Right. If he were telling you what's really going on and what was in his mind behind these sorts of things. Like he, Yandy's a screwed up dad. He screwed it up. He got cornered and then he decided for the rest of that movie, he was going to make things right all the way to the very end. And if that meant death, that's what it meant. And he's never done anything right. Let him do one thing right. And that's where you get the final 20 minutes of that movie, which are the most emotional and cathartic and awesome moments in any Marvel movie and why it stands alone as an actual good film from a filmmaking perspective among any of the MCU films. But so you, I came out of that movie because of how it ended just loving it and thinking it was probably just the best Marvel movie ever until further reflection and thinking about it and talking with you about you about it. I think it was after that movie that we really started to think about that particular scene that bugged me and articulate why yeah well i don't think any of us were comfortable with that scene yeah no of course not but we hadn't given a complete language to all of that quite yet no and you were the one that really put it all together but but yeah so i guess that's the guardians and then the he slipped an f-bomb into each one of these movies that can't be true because it is true they made a big deal about this being the first f-bomb in the mcu yeah well he did it he did it on the QT both times. First, he flipped, we have Star-Lord giving everybody the finger. Right. And second, I am Groot is translated as... Oh, right. Okay. Rocket translates it in the second one as he said something friggin' only he didn't use friggin'. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
he got it in there sideways twice, and then this time he got it in there explicitly for the first time. But anyhow, he tries to elevate the crassness too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about James Gunn. He is a damaged fellow. Okay, we can't spend a lot of time on this, but Marvel bag, we're all super sick of Marvel, just like everybody, right? Yeah. And we all have varying degrees of fondness, probably. I mean, I I remember feeling like the first Iron Man was a big breath of fresh air. It came out the same year as Dark Knight, people should remember. They both kind of, Dark Knight felt like the important new superhero movie that was doing something cool and fresh, but Iron Man kind of felt like the one that nobody expected, and it was the fun one. And then I enjoyed them to various degrees. We have our criticisms and complaints, and we really hated what the Russo brothers did with Captain America. You can go back to this very podcast, which started around that time, and hear us. Yeah, and I was never, like, I didn't watch the Iron Man movies until probably even that first Iron Man movie until after the first Avengers film came out. I don't think I watched that in theater, so I think, the way it happened, like I just never cared about Marvel properties, not even Spider-Man, not really. And I just thought it was Batman's his own separate thing, Superman's his own separate thing, but the rest of it's just dumb, dorky kid stuff. And so as people were getting into that stuff, I just did not care about it until I think what the first Avengers film comes out in 2010. That's 2010, yeah. And so my son's three years old, and people are like, this is really cool. This is actual fun kid stuff. This is exciting. I have a lot of people that are into it. So I just sort of like, I think I- 2012, what, by the way. 2012. Yeah. So my son's five years old. All his friends, yeah, he's like in kindergarten. All his friends are like, Avengers stuff is cool. So I think I red boxed Avengers and then backfilled phase one and then kept up with it from from then on. So probably when Guardians hit, I had just like... Just locked in? I think I had binged probably all of it. And so probably had a year's worth of... Or crammed five years worth of Marvel into a year and was just like, ugh. Hmm. And then Guardians hit and was like, oh, they still have some... This Hmm. isn't all the same. Yeah. Ben, Mm. your Marvel baggage. I think I saw... I feel like I saw just about everything for a while there. Was it because you wanted to or because you... I was super excited. I was, I mean, I was the kind of, as a kid, I would watch every trailer I could for movie, even movies that I was never going to see. I'd just find them. If there's anything at all action or sci-fi, I'd watch it over and over. I probably watched the Matrix trailer, no joke, like a hundred times. I was so excited. I had Lord of the Rings. Man, I was just a hound for every scrap of footage or news. So that's how I approached... Was YouTube even a thing? No. YouTube wasn't, but it was the age no. of internet rumors and Ain't It Cool. Ain't It Cool News like, was, yeah. Okay, so this, they would have the trailer at Ain't It Cool or well, something? Yeah, they, they would have the trailer, or there would be other sites, like dedicated Lord of the Rings sites. When Peter Jackson released the first bit of footage with that really awesome music, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just watched that thing to death. Like, probably every day I'd watch it. So that's how, so I carried some of that. I still have a little of that, not as much, but I carried, I was still carrying those kinds of habits into the Marvel era, if I'm remembering the timeline right. So I was really excited for Iron Man, watched the trailer over and over and over and over and over, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, Iron Man was super fun in the theaters. I'm trying to remember what else. I know I never saw Iron Man 2, still haven't ever seen it. I've watched clips. I don't remember why. I heard that it stunk. And it was pretty bad. Did you... 
What's your thoughts on Joss Whedon's original Avengers movie? Well, that was that was the best thing ever, basically. That was the best thing ever. People forget it. That was a that it, was it was the best thing ever. When that came out and the fact that he pulled it off and that all these characters were in it and it was so funny and his say what you will about Whedon, but his dialogue was on point in that movie and the action was fun and you got every character and it's like finally we can do an actual big scale superhero comic book movie. Yeah, it was cool. It was super cool. It doesn't hold up, but it's no. cool. No, I don't expect no. that it would and I don't really want to go back and find out, but no. I've tried and I've probably tried. It's been a, while, a long time since I've tried, but I feel like I've put it on twice in the last five or six years and fallen asleep both times pretty early on. Like it just doesn't like it's oh. shot like a TV episode or something. It looks yeah, bad. It, for it one looks thing. bad. It it's just yep. Once you cracked it, it was cracked, and then there was nothing interesting about it because all yeah. the interest was in the cracking of it. Mm-hmm. But there's so much right. like that that Dungeons and Dragons movie ripped off directly from it. Individual Absolutely. beats. I mean, it's it's pretty seminal and it's pretty in its way. Yeah, it's pretty great as a just yeah. yeah it, like you said, say what you want about Whedon. He he did something special that every. It's just sort of like the prequels in that sense. I fall asleep during the prequels too. Like I just can't keep my eyes open for Phantom Menace if the kids want to watch it. But, and so say what you will about them, like everything downstream is impacted and changed. They changed the game. George Lucas changed the game with the prequels. Joss Whedon changed the game with Avengers. And and you think of how difficult that is, like that, in how many different ways that movie could have fallen, just crashed and burned. It's, yeah. it's really tricky what he does, and it's really elegant the way that he does it. At the time, who cared that his visual sense was not that great? I mean, it. He, I mean, he he's, still he's, had some visual sense. Yeah. He had more visual sense than yeah. a lot of like. He's gonna give you that. You know, the three sixty shot and stuff. Yeah, like the three sixty. Yeah, yeah. sh- he's gonna give you a couple of those scenes where everybody is fighting. Yeah, and you get them all in in a single cut, and they're all fighting in a way that is unique to their character their style like he's gonna give you those moments and nobody few people are even gonna bother to do that mm-hmm. well and it felt grounded Absolutely. like you're actually in new york for the battle of new york there's these big monsters looming over and you kind of feel like you're in the city which just environmentally it had uh, more of a feeling of actually being there than a lot of the schlockier later marvel movies where you just feel like you're watching a video game yeah and whedon's not gonna fast cut action he's not gonna make some dumb mistakes that the Russo brothers make. They're some of the worst video game offenders, like in Civil War. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. There's a couple of scenes, chase scene that's ah, just Well, terrible. the Russo brothers were the ones that I was grumpy about at the time because I just yeah. thought they, they got overpraised because they were, what they were doing was fresh and fun, but man, they're not actually very good at it. <laughs> and that always bugs me. Yeah. Well, Winter Soldier did have a couple of, action bits yeah winter soldier i think they've gotten worse they got worse after that like winter soldier well what what they learned what i mean they just learned the wrong lessons winter soldier actually had a couple good little action set pieces absolutely and they learned okay so long as it feels grounded and we can cheat this and we can just put this in our pre-comp or Mm previs then then great and then so everything else is just like it didn't have anything like the elbow grease put into it in terms right. of shot composition and choreography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Winter Soldier has some of the seeds of their own action destruction, or I don't know how to put that in a less dramatic way, but it's some of their weaknesses with big CGI scenes. Yeah. 
even at the time, Winter Soldier was like, well, that's these are some giant CG airships. They sure are. Joss Whedon would probably have done a better job with this part, actually. Mm-hmm. But Well, since that time, there's been so much that's come out about how quick the turnaround is. How much, much pressure is put on the, the animation studios, yep, how last yeah. minute it all is. The yep. way that they build these movies, I've said this before, but they learned to do movies based on Robert Downey Jr.'s preferred way of working, which is great if you have Robert Downey Jr. who just wants to improv and kind of come up with things and try things and kind of build build the story out as you go. But if you don't have a genius like Robert Downey Jr., then maybe right He's totally locked into a character that it, he's processing his whole life through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's not... Like, but it's what like, he was able to do was just be Tony Stark and let the character inform his own personality and let his own personality inform the character. Like he, the synthesis of RDJ and Tony Stark is so perfect in a way that just doesn't work for anyone else. It's a, it's lightning in a bottle and you just, you don't, you can't just go and make every other movie. You try to like do that. that with Chris Evans and what happens, you get a nasty edge to Captain America and all this, uh, America all this, all of a sudden. Yeah. Like the only person you can kind of do that with is who has that kind of synthesis is Thor, but that's like a paper thin character with a paper thin actor. Mm-hmm. Like they failed. He's just a, they, they did it once well, but yeah. Uh, but and then after that, it was horrible. Yeah, Love and Thunder. They try and do the same thing, and they fall on their it faces. Turns out he's all he's got is a little bit of a dorkable bro humor mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. him, and that's it. Like that's the end of it. So many of these movies are kind of and, built in the uh, editing room. They're found, and that's really a weird way to work like a script james gunn obviously he likes things to feel shaggy that's his preferred kind of storytelling which you could like or not dislike but he obviously writes a script it is one of the things that makes him kind of unique in the marvel like they're obviously working from a pretty strong blueprint which is actually one of the things that allows these movies to successfully be shaggy but anyway ben any any other baggage yeah i I know you grew tired of it just like we all did yeah I, i think that's really all i have to say Trying to remember the last time we, we let's see Shang Chi. We said you can go back to that episode. You can hear more I mean, of my baggage there. You guys saw, you guys reviewed Black Widow and Multiverse of Madness. Right. Me and Ben had the pleasure of seeing Black Widow together, and, and only you saw. Only I saw Multiverse of Madness. Madness. Black Widow was basically a zero. Has a really fun opening scene, and then the rest of the movie is just nothing. Like you're just. It really is. So I haven't seen either of those, and I, did any of us watch the second Black Panther? Didn't watch the second Black nope. Panther, just didn't care. Yeah. Didn't care to watch Ant-Man and the Quantumania, and apparently everybody no. hated it anyway. Yeah. None of us have seen Eternals. No. It wasn't going to bother with that. None of us have watched any of the shows since WandaVision. Yeah, yeah I mean, correct. I felt... I guess, did Loki come out? Loki was after. Well, okay, so WandaVision like, kind of betrayed us with a bad ending, and then Loki betrayed us with a bad ending, and it's just like, okay, they're cares. never going to break away from this serialized storytelling crap yeah. where I can't invest in anything. None of us watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier. None of us have tried anything else. The Hawkeye show. I watched some scenes from the Hawkeye show. Of, of anything, it looked the most charming, I guess. But I didn't care. And then there's another one with Kamala Khan. Miss Marvel. And then there's the oh there was She Hulk too in Moon Knight. Oh yeah, there's Moon been a bunch. Knight. There's been a bunch. I don't care at all. And nobody cares about any of them. Yeah, I don't. I just yeah, I do no. not care. And they threw the trailer for the Marvels or whatever mm-hmm. at the top of. Did you? Get yeah, the, I've, I got, I got oh, the man. joy. 
What yeah. a waste of life. It's just, well, it's it's what we said. You could go back and hear us say this in our mm-hmm. Endgame review. Like, they've killed all the fathers. They killed Iron Man. They literally killed Iron Man, and they killed our ability to root for Captain America by making him a selfish jerk. And there's nobody for a man to invest in. There's really nobody for a little boy to, a little boy can invest in Spider-Man still. But in terms of my rooting interest, a character to actually be my avatar they just don't do it anymore it's star lord will return though yay (laughs) so i mean it's just like i'm not even like i'm not making a moral stand or anything it's just like i i have no interest in marvel i really have very little interest in star wars anymore maybe some of it is aging out but also i think it's just if they told good stories with protagonists that i could care about then i would probably come back well, of course you would because it, at the least you would care about it through y- your children you would be able to enjoy it through your kids enjoyment there's nothing for your kids to enjoy now so no, no it's just nothing for you to enjoy it's no. just lame and it feels like this guardians movie may not be the financial success that they want it to be it's done very poorly so far it's very poorly relative to franchises that where each entry routinely makes a billion dollars it's still going to make so much money but mm. it's making I want to say the least amount of, it had the least, what's the actual stat? I'll just look it up. Guardians. I haven't followed in the slightest. Of the galaxy makes least, projected to make less money. Yeah, it's making less money than its predecessor, which that's not even taking inflation into account. That's just, like there's there are way less people that want to see this movie opening weekend than did Guardians 2 and maybe even Guardians 1. Which, I mean, my feeling is that people still like the Guardians. So the fact that they've lost that much of a luster just by association is bad news. We may be seeing the real beginning of the end here. But Nathan Blade is coming out in 2024. Oh, that's true. There's a writer's strike, though. So who knows what's going to happen with any of it? I mean, we'll see how The Flash does. If The Flash doesn't perform like they want it to, then the studios are going to freak out and be like, uh-oh. Are people, the superhero movies are over. Is the superhero boom just done? Who knows? We'll see. I bet one of the big superhero movies does just fine and they all re-up. I think probably Flash. I think Flash is probably going to do just fine. Yeah. I um, mean, the Keaton factor. The Keaton factor, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Keaton's going to wear it out. Beetlejuice too, man. Mm. It's too much. Yep. It's too much. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I already feel like Keaton's wearing it out a little bit. Uh, okay. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. we got to talk about it. You want a little bit of comic book context? A little bit of comic book context, and then I'll give a little bit of James Gunn context. Cool. You know what? Spider-Verse is going to crush it. Spider-Verse is going to be... I need to eat, oh, I don't know, a bite of crow. Not an entire plate worth of crow. I'll eat one bite of crow, maybe two bites of crow. Because I don't think I've ever actually watched the domestic trailer. I I think I thought I watched the domestic trailer, but I've only ever actually seen the international trailer for spider-verse for spider-verse i saw the domestic trailer before guardians in the theater and i was like oh well okay this is why ben and jake are so excited this is a much better trailer than anything i've seen this right this looks yeah still have my concerns so i'm not ready to eat like a full course of crow yet but it's a definitely a better trailer and it gets me more pumped for the movie i think my our conversation about that would have been a little different in our whatever podcast came out recently by the way, we should say our predictions on the Guardians that we said in that we were like, James Gunn can do anything. He can kill off all the characters. That was the discussion. It's really exciting and scary because he's such a dark guy. 
those were the things that we said in that podcast. So we'll see how those stacked <laughs> up with the reality of the movie and what he chose to do. Yeah. Anyway, Ben, you're going to give us some Guardians context. Dun, 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 dun. It's the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book context. <laughs> context is why you tuned into this podcast, listener. That's right. In 1969, in Marvel Presents, Guardians of the Galaxy became a superhero team. The unforgettable team of all your favorite characters. Vance Astro, Martinex Tanaga, Captain Charlie 27, all the ones you love. All our favorite characters. <laughs> and Yandu Udanta. Nope, that's not the Yandu from the movies. This, you all know that the main Marvel reality, obviously, is reality 616. Everyone knows that. Yep. But guys, this was reality 691. It's a very different reality. And it was the 31st century, so this is not the same Yandu. So, however... <laughs> I would have you know <laughs> that since the Guardians movie came out, there is now an Earth version of Yandu that's the distant ancestor of 31st century Yandu. So they're related, kind of. Yeah, so the Guardians have not been a big thing in Marvel Comics, if anyone was wondering. I'm sure that you already knew that. They were not a big thing. They were there in 69... Marvel Presents was the comic book. It didn't last that long. It was canceled after a few issues. And then the Guardians would come back as guest stars in the 70s in Marvel Comics. And then they finally got their own series in the 90s. A five-year series, which seems pretty good. And that, that finally adds characters that you love. Like Stakar Ogord, <laughs> Starhawk, <laughs> Aletta Ogord, Nikki! <laughs> oh, Nikki's in there? <laughs> Nikki's in there. So these are all no-name characters. You might, like, if you're really tracking, you would realize that Sylvester Stallone is playing Starhawk okay. in the Guardian, Guardians 2 and 3. But not like the comic, like, all of these characters in the comic books are much more like superheroes than what James Gunn does. They're all, like, super-powered. But Starhawk is just some pirate, space pirate, in these movies. So he's an alternate version of a comic book thing. These movies are based most closely on a 2008 version of the team, which actually finally does include people like Star-Lord, Rocket Raccoon Groot, Gamora, Drax the Destroyer, Adam Warlock. And a lot of these characters had been created before without being part of this superhero team. They weren't Guardians of the Galaxy. They were just space characters introduced here and there. Drax, Star-Lord. Drax was like shooting energy blasts out of his hands in the comics and going one-on-one -on -one with Thanos. James Gunn is going to make him a much more broken, weak individual. Star-Lord, here's a quote about Star-Lord, a master strategist and problem solver who is an expert in close quarter combat, various human and alien firearms, and battle techniques. He has extensive knowledge of various alien customs, societies, and cultures, and he uses an element gun. He has a psychic link with a sentient space vessel ship, so James Gunn is just gonna, whoop, just put these guys down like 10 notches, all of them, and just make them relatively weak. Right. So actually. you're actually talking about like, they were like Space Avengers, basically. They're like Space Avengers, and they're crazy powerful. Like, Star-Lord and Drax are crazy powerful. You, Some of this stuff, like, James Gunn just picked up on the loser themes that were there. Peter Quill was abandoned by his dad, who was from space. That's from the comics. Gamora was the last of her species, raised by Thanos. Yondu was the last of his species. I don't think that there's anything like that in the movies. But that's the kind of stuff. You don't see anybody that looks like Yondu. That's about as far as that goes. That's about as far as that goes. And but, we know that he's an orphan of some kind. Right. And so James Gunn is just going to be like, any loser thread I can pull on, I'm going to pull on it. I'm going to make these guys fun losers, adorkable losers. Well, he's, al he's also 
I mean, there may be some Feige going on there too. If we've got to integrate these characters into the same world as our Avengers and keep them. Mm -hmm. We can't just have a bunch of Captain Marvels or whatever. Yeah, we can't have a bunch of people who are overpowering Robert Downey, like who make Robert Downey Jr. and Captain America look stupid. That's right. So that's got to be part of it too. It's got to integrate into the MCU as we understand it, where they all make sense working together against Thanos. Right. And can be subordinated to our main storyline heroes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, James Gunn is going to go as far as, like I said, putting Starhawk in there and putting other, some of the other names that I read that you've never heard of are in the movies as like, I'm a Ravager. You might hear my name once. I have no dialogue, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he's going he's gonna to do that. He's like familiar with this lore. He wants to please the fans, but he's like, I'm not going to create that. So there's your Guardians context. There you go. So basically James Gunn got handed a bunch of B-listers and That's right. or C-listers or D-listers even. And yeah. Just did his own. Therefore, do had, something with this. Had maybe. his freedom to do freedom. Do to what do. you yeah. want. Nobody cares about these characters. Yeah. That's right. In, in some sense, Iron Man, right? Like we don't have the rights to Spider-Man. We don't have the rights to whatever. See if you can make something. Black Widow, Hawkeye, all those guys. They fans have some love for them and always have, but it's not like they were. There's a bunch of B-listers. A bunch yeah. of B-listers. Yeah. yeah, where the Guardians sound like they're more like D-listers. They, or something. I think that yeah. they were D-listers. Yeah, but yeah, we all like, pretend like Iron Man's a thing now. Like I don't remember even. I mean, I had I no idea who, who Iron yeah, Man was. Like you probably knew who Iron Man was. I then. did, but I didn't read it. I remember trying to read an Avengers comic or two as a kid who loved this sort of thing, just being bored to death. I would read Spider-Man and X-Men. I didn't care at all about those guys. Yeah, well, there's just so much Yeah, well, lore. Spider-Man and X-Men were the A-listers, right? Yep. They're awesome. And then the Hulk. Yeah, and they had their yeah. own Saturday it, morning Even Captain cartoons. America was never cool. No, like definitely not. No, he's just iconic. Like, yeah. literally iconic. He's an icon. You know who, what he looks like. Yeah, basically. and that's it. Yeah. And you use him to make fun of people. Yeah. On the baseball yeah. team, you call Captain America, the guy who thinks he can rally the team together and be the... You know, it's just like, okay, Captain America. Right. That's just, uh, that's about all you know. He's like <laughs> the goody two-shoes guy who thinks he's going to lead and rally the troops. It's like, yeah, yeah okay. Yep. Either you have the uh, ability and authority to do that and we're behind you or, okay, Captain America. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's talk about James Gunn. So my premise for all this is James Gunn has issues. I don't know if you guys would agree with this or not. It would seem that he has issues. It would, yeah. so, man. but man- I mean, I thought, I think we all kind of know who James Gunn is and where he's coming from. But if you really just do the research and see who James Gunn is and where he's coming from, it's crazy. Marvel hiring him is really weird. I mean, it would be, I was trying to think of an analogy and I don't know that I have a perfect one. Eli Roth or someone, right? It would be like if Hallmark hired Eli Roth and said, make a rom-com for us. And then Eli Roth tried to put some of his love of gore and stuff in the edges, but he still had to follow the full formula of a Hallmark movie. Eli Roth is. Oh, he's like a horror guy. He did Hostel and Cabin Fever. And uh, I haven't seen them. I just I feel it, he makes the kind of horror movies that for some reason I read reviews of them. I'm kind of sensitive to this stuff, and it like won't get out of my mind. It's like that is so disgusting. Well, he, he people have coined that stupid term torture porn for his movies. So he's the torture porn guy. So yeah. so yeah, if Hallmark hired the torture porn horror guy, but then. Did not hire him to make torture porn, but to make rom-coms. And then he put like as much torture porn into the rom-coms, like which, around the edges but, as which, he could. But, which, by the way, they, someone did hire him to make a 
dumb looking children's fantasy movie, The House with the Clock in the Yeah, right. which, yeah, yeah which that, I never saw. I heard no. I don't think anyone liked it. This, but this is just what modern Hollywood does. It takes these guys. I feel like I might have watched that. I heard it was like not. It, it looked pretty lame. Whatever. Uh, it's not what? Jack Black. Yeah, yeah, Jack yeah. Black. I think. I certainly remember the trailer. I didn't see the trailer even. I think I watched that at some. I just the idea of Eli Roth grosses me out. James Gunn is gross too. James Gunn, let's dig in. Yeah, so yeah. this guy was born August fifth, nineteen sixty six, into an Irish Catholic family. Now, what do you guys think? Was he outsider artist from Irish Catholic family, mid sixties? Are we think talking happy childhood, sad childhood, family togetherness? <laughs> I'm gonna say lots of family togetherness, uh-huh. lots of wholeness. Definitely no brokenness. Definitely no Catholic school. Definitely no divorce. Definitely no need to go have a found family of broken misfits for himself. Well, Jake, you'd be wrong. What? You are an idiot, as Drax would say. <laughs> he was one of six children. His father was... I think it went over your head, Drax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would not. I would catch it. His father was an attorney, if you can imagine that. And his influences, we'll get to his trauma, but his influences, he liked to read comic books, if you can imagine that. He would escape into his comic book world, and he loved the really old, creaky 1930s horror movies, Creature from the Black Lagoon, House of Frankenstein, the original Bela Lugosi, Dracula. And the reason that anybody, the reason I loved those movies when I was a kid who came from a messy family, the reason everybody still, the reason those things will be around forever, even though there's so little to actually enjoy about them. They're so creaky and old is people love the monsters. They love to identify with the monsters. Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, kids love them lumbering around or Dracula. Like you don't watch those movies because you want to be scared. You watch those movies because you want to live in an old castle and wear a cape and the iconography still slaps. Yeah. The iconography Hmm. Absolutely slaps. Here's a quote from Gunn. Mostly I was into the monsters, he said. I think I loved the monsters. I even felt sorry for Wolfman and Dracula and all of them. So he has a he starts to build his own worlds, just like many of these dudes. He would draw planets and then he would figure out the alien societies, the style of their houses, the shape of their pets, the design of their plumbing, even. This explains a lot already. Um, and he just had a box full of universes that he would create. Now, this is certainly the story that James Gunn wants to tell. So yep. take it all with a little bit yeah, of grain C.S. Of salt. Lewis has the same kind of story. It, C.S. Lewis, Lots of people do. Yeah, they, yeah. they certainly. I mean, I, I think have, J.K. Rowling has this story too, hmm. right? I've got a box I don't like know. that. Probably, I think I still have it somewhere. He, he got eight, an eight millimeter film camera, if you can imagine this, and started making his own homemade zombie movies. 1966 would put him, I forget exactly when Night of the Living Dead came out, I think 67, but he would have grown up with the classic zombie movies and the classic second wave of horror movies when they started to actually make things really scary and more down to earth. So he grew up with that stuff. And again, I'm going to get to more of his trauma, but as he became a teenager, he started, he, this was, would have been in the seventies. So he got into music. I don't know if you guys were expecting this, but and his big things were Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols as an icon and Alice Cooper of the Alice Cooper band. 
who, if people don't remember, was a big kind of goth rock, would behead himself on stage. He was like the original Marilyn Manson. Maybe we even need a new reference for that, because I don't know if people still know who he was. But he went and saw Alice Cooper, and the whole crowd was chanting, hang him, hang him, hang him. And James Gunn was like, this is really cool. He went to Catholic school, Jesuit St. Louis University High School, Loyola University, Marymount Film School he eventually went to. He got a master's degree in fine arts from... Columbia University eventually, but most of his childhood, he was in the sort of Catholic and Jesuit school system. And you want to go back and you want to find the trauma because you just- It screams off the page. It screams off- The screen. <clears throat> even just the story I told. Here's a guy who escapes into fantasy. Here's a guy who loves monster movies. Here's a guy who makes his own monster movies. Here's a guy who loves the sort of outcast rock anti-heroes of his time, Alice Cooper, Johnny Rotten, punk music. I mean, here's a guy that's just so punk and so monster and so goth, we would have said 20 years ago. So even just given that, even before you get to his filmography, like there has to be the thing. And James Gunn has never that I could find said that he was directly abused, but he did go to Jesuit St. Louis University High School. And there was a gentleman, the school's monsignor named Obman, Russell Obman. And at the time, Gunn said he knew that uh, this Obman guy was giving kids alcohol and pornography. So the guy would, it was just like a known fact, like, oh yeah, Billy went to hang out with this monsignor and he had alcohol and pornography. At a certain point, James Gunn realizes like he gets a little older and he realizes, oh, wait a second, that's not all that this was about. This was about. That's not all that this guy was doing. But basically, there's a pretty infamous Catholic child molester who's operating at full tilt in James Gunn's school. And the way James Gunn tells it, he's just seducing all these boys and stuff like that. James Gunn's very familiar with it happening. And James Gunn goes to his mom and dad and says, like, Father Obman is taking these kids into the rectory and giving them beer and stuff. And they just kind of awe Jimmy him. Like, oh, yeah, you know, basically, we don't believe you. Or if we do mm -hmm. believe you, we're not going to get into it. <laughs> what James Gunn says is, this was in the 80s. People weren't sensitive to that stuff. So he just feels like it feels a little silly, maybe. But Rocket's story is so in my mind here. Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was always your story, Rocket. Yeah, it was always Rocket's story. And Rocket's story is someone is the story of someone who is, well, you know, we can get into that. But that's the big trauma. I mean, he still, he actually likes his family, which is interesting. I mean, it sounds like his dad was an alcoholic, just kind of all this, the usual stuff that you'd, ex kind of the cliches that you'd expect of a mid-century Catholic mm. family, where the father is a high-level attorney and I expected to find James Gunn more directly talking about real abuse that he had experienced. It's interesting to speculate whether he was one of the victims of Monsignor or whether he was a perpetrator or anything like that. But he, he doesn't whether say that. Whether his brother was. Whether his brother was. He does not say that. He has not gone public. The only thing he's ever gone public with is that I was part of a school system where children this were, happened. Th this was children were chur being churned through this this abusers whatever but in any case he one of the one of the other ways that he deals with it which is really interesting in addition to the film in addition to throwing himself into outsider music and outsider art he has visions of god 
he has these like psychedelic dreams where the finger of God touches him and sort of makes him feel at peace and like he's special or something like that. You say psychedelic, are these drug induced or are they? No, I mean, he just talks about having wild dreams, wild dreams, wild visions even of God around the same time that he was getting into Alice Cooper and Johnny Watt. And so he would have been a teenager and it's, and God is speaking to him, which I mean, remember this guy has grown up with religious iconography and God and all this stuff. And also monster iconography. And also monster iconography. And I'm sure he, James Dunn, John has done a lot of drugs in his life. He gets out of the house. He does go to Loyola University's film school for a while. And then he finally gets a master's degree in fine arts from Columbia University. And then he basically becomes like a an artist, an outsider artist. Like he's a guy that'll go to a coffee shop and read his beat poetry. He's one of these kinds of guys. Kind of, I don't think he was in Greenwich Village, but kind of the Greenwich Village style of artists that we think of from like the 1950s or 60s. James Gunn was doing the 70s and 80s version of that guy. And this lifestyle leads him to a little producing company named Troma. Are either of you guys familiar with Troma Films? Ben? I know. I've heard Toxic Avengers, Toxic right? Avengers, Stuff like that, yeah. like stuff known for pulpy violence and sex and sex and stuff, right? Yeah, they're this low-budget indie producer of kind of gross-out sex and gore films. They hit the okay. market around the same time that VHS was really rising, and so they produced these cheap, quick exploitation films that you could just sell video cassettes of. And so they're all just kind of the Toxic Avenger. It's just, what can I get a 13-year-old boy to want to buy this video? So there's the promise of gore. There's a com- promise of breasts. There's the promise of lots of stuff that's really intentionally cheesy and in really bad taste. So they did things like Toxic Avenger, Class of Nukem High. You, like, you need a title and a poster that you can just sell. It's like, well, yeah. Which Toxic Avenger, I, I became familiar with as a kid because they made an animated series out of it. Yeah. The kids could watch. Yeah, Troma actually got some cultural cachet and Toxic Avenger kind of became popular for a minute there and they did like the watered down kids version. But if you tried to go back and watch any of it, I mean, you wouldn't. But if you did, it would just be nonstop profanity and nudity and very poorly done violence. It would all kind of look like it was poorly gratuitous violence, but like silly, like a a rubber arm ripping off of a guy and you Mm -hmm. know, way too much blood. Like it's it's that kind of a thing. And Mm -hmm. the head of that studio, a beloved man, a man who appears in this movie, and I think he's in the card game, is Lloyd Kaufman. I mean, he's kind of indie filmmakers worship this guy because his movies are all intentionally in bad taste, but he's very avuncular. He's got a sense of humor about it. He knew exactly what he was doing. He's just like the campy sort of auteur of exploitation. Mm. And he, and so he's making these kind of bad taste, softcore movies. And he hires James Gunn, who's this outsider artist with a chip on his shoulder for $150 to write the screenplay for a movie called Tromeo and Juliet. Troma is the name of the production company. So again, they're very silly and self-aware. and They're a brand, right? Like kids of mm. the time would of a certain, like if I had grown up at that time, I, if I had just been a couple years older, I would have been a Troma kid and I would have known Troma and got all the end jokes and stuff like that. So Tromeo and Juliet is a James Gunn, James Gunn's first screenplay and it's full of rape and incest and mutilation. And it's just, it's really sick. 
I actually found a random scene, which I won't show you guys, but I just want to tell you what happens in this scene so you get the idea of the kind of stuff that James Gunn was doing at the time. So the hero, Tromeo, is fighting his adversary. It's kind of like a modern day Romeo and Juliet riff. So it's like on the streets of New York and he's fighting the bad guy. And the bad guy says, get ready to die. And then the hero looks over and he sees a truck with a ladder sticking out of the window that's driving along. And the hero says, it happens to everybody sooner or ladder. And then he shoves the guy. The guy gets hooked on the ladder and then he gets pulled up into the air. The hero is still holding onto his arm. So his arm is ripped off, stays in the hero's hand. And then some random pedestrian dude says, I hope he's left handed. And then a pedestrian woman says, it's another New York thing. The hero is grossed out by the arm that he's been left holding. So he throws it away and it hits a blind woman who's crossing the street. And that's played for silly slapstick comedy. Meanwhile, a couple of workers are raising a car up on a car mount. And one of them says, Brian, you got to work hard to get ahead in life. The bad guy is thrown from the ladder that he's been hooked on, and his head is cut off by this mount. The head flies. The guys are, ah! And it's all, you wouldn't really be gross. It actually sounds grosser me describing it because it's all like plastic. It looks like they got all this stuff at a Halloween store. It's so cheap and so intentionally funny. The head goes flying through the air. There's this happy family of wasps, this happy, cheerful, all-American, annoying family driving along singing songs to as they go in their car. They're like this corny family. La-di-da-di-da. The head lands on their car. The two little boys in the back of the car start laughing and pointing at the head as mom and dad scream. Dad swerves wildly. The car flips in slow motion. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Flies through the air, blows up. Dad staggers out with a broken leg while the two boys toss the severed head back and forth the car explodes again. So that's James Gunn. That is like uncut, unfiltered James Gunn writing every joke, every provocation, like everything that you can throw in the blender to make this in bad taste, intentional, ridiculous, bad taste. He's having a blast doing it and he's making fun of the nuclear family. Like anything that he can throw a middle finger at anything that they the blind woman that gets hit with the severed arm it's just like let us not miss an opportunity to pack more provocation and meanness and exploitation opportunities into this stuff and that's a very tame scene compared to i think tromeo and juliet end up realizing that they're siblings so there's like a whole sort of incestuous vibe to the thing and i mean it's just like and there's pedophiles. And I've not watched this movie, don't worry. But if you did, I think you'd assume that we don't know the whole James Gunn story because it is just so this whoever did this, yes, he's being intentionally provocative for this sleaze ball outfit that likes to be provocative, but also this guy's got some real His conscience is like toast. D- or yeah, something he's he's got or... demons that he's working through. Now after that, We're not working through just channeling. Or, yeah, just channeling. Yeah. Just I mean, when you compare that to the James Gunn that we've got now, you're like, okay, I guess this guy's got some therapy or work actually worked through some things. Actually maybe. worked through some things. Like it feels like he. It is, feels like he is at peace about some. Guardians stuff. Three feels like he's worked through things from Guardians Two. Yeah, 
I think that's right. It's one of the charms of Guardians 3. But next he does something very important. He does a low-budget indie comedy called The Specials, which is about a loser superhero team. And the script is actually good enough that it attracts Rob Lowe. And it's not popular. It doesn't make any money. It doesn't get seen by anybody. But it's the kind of movie that people in the industry see. So Joss Whedon actually sees it. And here's a quote. Whedon says, I think that movie is vastly important. Nobody had done a modern version of deconstructing superheroes so perfectly. It informed how we write superheroes as much the most ponderous, I have the weight of the world on my shoulders kind of thing. And Whedon gets a copy of this. I did see this movie. Oh, really? I saw it, yeah. I think it's very dull. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it is now. Apparently, Whedon saw it and was like, wow, somebody finally... Cracked something. Yeah. They broke something. I, back in the day, no, yeah, this came out a year after Mystery Men. Hmm. And Mystery Men became one of my favorite movies back in the day. Yeah. Mystery Men Men actually has a visual style. Specials has no visual style. It's Mm -hmm. like a made-for-TV movie. Whatever you want to say about the writing. All right. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it. But apparently, Whedon at least was like, wow, this guy really has a... Has some insight. Has an insight, has a Mm -hmm. point of view on superheroes, and he remembered it, which of course is going to pay off later in our story. Around this time, marries Jenna Fisher from The Office, Pam, which is kind of an interesting sidebar. He's not still married to her, but he was married to her. She features heavily in kind of being an encouragement in the early part of his career. And he breaks into mainstream film, and the way he does it is with, does anyone know the movie that he wrote the screenplay for? Total Piece of Junk. Got a CGI dog based on a semi-beloved Hanna-Barbera property with monsters and stuff. He likes to eat Scooby Stacks, this character. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I James, can't imagine is who it, it is. is. <laughs> Stuart Little, no. <laughs> the Jetsons. The Jetsons, yeah. Scooby-Doo <laughs> in 2002, Gunn writes that screenplay. Gunn wants Wes Craven to direct, the famous horror guy. Gunn wanted it to be scary and provocative and r-rated or at the very least pg-13 and actually it was going to be but the mpaa saw it and kind of balked at it and they were like let's cut this down to a kid's film so that movie is actually i've not seen the whole thing but it is interesting to watch because what you're looking at is a movie written by james gunn as a james gunn ish movie that the studio was like nope and so let's like, like they added some farts and toned it all down they actually cgi'd away cleavage like they they added clothing with computers so that so that it would be more like the characters would be dressed so so really what james gunn wrote was like a spoof of an adult spoof of scooby-doo and then it got turned into a children's scooby-doo betty's really happy about that yeah (laughs) the thing about james gunn is that one of the reasons he succeeded in the industry is because he doesn't express how unhappy he is with that he just kind of takes thing his paycheck and moves on and moves on yeah he's, he knows how to work inside the studio system he always has for being such an outsider guy he actually does write the screenplay for scooby-doo 2 monsters unleashed you can't say he didn't know what that one was going to be and then in 2004 he also writes the screenplay for Zack snyder's calling card dawn of the dead the remake of the romero film which is a pretty well liked movie among aficionados of the zombie genre many people would say it's Zack snyder's best film i would not say that but you know certainly Zack snyder's humblest film even that scene as i think we said in a recent podcast even that movie feels like for a genre that's all about othering that movie is extra othery there's scenes of like well i didn't really like that guy and now he's a zombie so i get to shoot him like that kind of feeling Mm -hmm. the whole time then james gunn does a little 
movie called Slither, a horror movie about slugs that get inside of Michael Rooker and make him into a mean bad dad, basically. Then he does something called James Gunn's PG Porn for Spike.com, an early internet series where the where he gets real porn stars and the real porn stars act out porn scenarios, but then they always get interrupted and become PG. So the joke is that it's really innocuous, but it's it looks like it's going to be wow. type. So this guy's a sicko, and I'm leaving lots of stuff out, unless you think I'm being too detailed. I'm not actually being very detailed. You guys may remember the movie Super he did with Rain Wilson from The Office, who he knew through Jenna Fisher. This was another superhero thing where it's just a really mean movie where Rain Wilson, his wife is recovering from drugs, and then she gets sucked into a drug lifestyle, and he just goes crazy, dresses up in a superhero suit, and takes his revenge on gangsters. And it's got scenes like Rain Wilson standing and somebody cuts him in line and then he bashes the guy's head with a wrench. And it's played really violently. And like the humor is this guy thinks he's a superhero, but he's actually just a psychopath, a psychopath totally broken, irredeemable psychopath. And that is everything that James Gunn has done. And he's not really yeah. succeeding in the industry. Nothing's catching fire. He calls his agent to say... I want to do something big. I want to be part of the conversation. But he says, he literally said this, nobody's going to give me a Marvel movie. Well, about a week later, Marvel calls and wants to give him a Marvel movie. And, How on earth? Well, uh, it, Whedon, huh? it is a big question. I think a lot of it has to do with Whedon, who was kind of not just the successful director of the Avengers, but kind of the architect or the person they were looking to, to bring the whole thing together at the time. Yeah, He got pushed out of that with his own problems. But Whedon's like, oh, you're thinking about doing Guardians. Nobody has, nobody cares about these characters. This is a great thing to give Gunn, this guy who's obviously smart and creative and has an angle on superhero stuff, but he's never... And Marvel's likes to do that sort of thing. They like to find unique indie voices and then hand them some version of the reins to their machinery. Usually those indie voices end up just getting acclimated and kind of become part of the machine. I think that's what happened with the Russo brothers. That's what, you know, we could point to a number of examples right. or they get fired if they try to be too indie. Edge yeah. right on Ant-Man. Mm -hmm. I was going to say. But James Gunn's smart. Whatever else he is, he actually knows how to successfully go to a meeting and wear a suit and make the money people happy and work with Kevin Feige for what he wants. And James Gunn's been in the studio system writing screenplays like Scooby-Doo from about 2002, so if not a little, a few years before. So, so he's got this real chip on his shoulder. He's got a lot of trauma. He's got a lot of and a really dirty, vile exploitation film past. But he does actually, he's actually not the worst guy to bet on, I guess, because he's got an angle on the material and he's going to play nice. Scooby-Doo probably was a big selling point, right? Like, I think Scooby-Doo was... I had my own take on Scooby-Doo. They studioed the crap out of it. They still brought me back to write the sequel and I gave them the sequel that they wanted. Yeah, that's... Like, so I that's, know how to play nice with friends. That tells you something. Yeah. And I'm hungry. And Whedon wants him for that outsider sensibility. Whedon thinks, this guy's smart. Just like me, I, I know how to do this genre. I, Whedon, know how to do this genre stuff, but bring a fresh satirical sort of fun hip edge to it. Here's a guy that's like the new me, somebody that could really do that. So uh, Whedon gets the chance to make Guardians 1. It makes all the money. He gets a chance to make Guardians 2. He becomes- I mean, Gunn does. Uh, sorry, Gunn does. He, he becomes a major player. 
in Hollywood. And it's very strange looking back on his background and just how weird and angry and debauched his other things were. I mean, we didn't come up with the perfect metaphor again, but yeah, Eli Roth doing Hallmark or it's like this guy was a real piece of work and a real outsider artist and they brought him in. He did have his fall though, because James Gunn is such an angry outsider artist. He wrote a bunch of nasty tweets about rape and pedophilia and all and incest and all kinds of things innocuous enough that i can read example of a tweet that he wrote was i remember my first nambla meeting i can finally be who i am so it's like that those kinds of jokes but but way worse and just kind of dark jokes like laughter is the best medicine that's why i laugh at people with aids like james gunn's whole brand used to be like I'm provocative. I'm broken. I mean, it still is, but it used to really be that way. And he was pretty unwise in what he put on Twitter. Well, our good friends, Cernovich, Mike Cernovich and Jack Posobiec weren't going to stand for that. Those two men in particular, who we both, or who all three of us, I think, follow on Twitter and yeah. find them to be, Cernovich especially, a pretty helpful conservative voice for the most part. Yeah. Cernovich was just like, hey, so I don't think Cernovich actually has a chip on his shoulder specifically about James Gunn. What he has a chip on his shoulder about is they call us out for every little thing. They come after us for everything. And then these guys get away with everything. Like if you're part of the liberal elite, if you're part of the Hollywood system, it, nothing can touch you. Whereas if I jaywalk, then there's going to be a news story about it. Mm-hmm. And so James Gunn was kind of his whipping boy for that kind of thing. Like, look at this guy. He's the toast of the town. Everybody loves him. He's making movies that all of our children are going to see. And then look at the things he's said. If you dug up a tweet like that that I had said, then I'd be toast. I'd, yeah. I'd be over. I'd be in jail. James Gunn. And so he brings this to the forefront. James Gunn, all these old tweets resurface. Things that James Gunn actually had already apologized for whatever that's worth, that he had already kind of moved past. But he is fired in 2018, and it looks like he's not going to get to do Guardians 3. He moves over to, I'm sure all our listeners are familiar with this part of the story. He moves over to DC. He takes Suicide Squad. But Chris Pratt, the hero that we need, doesn't want to let things go. Chris Pratt was at church looking for solace, according to The Hollywood Reporter. And the sermon that day involved the story, I'm quoting here, of the Israelites circling the wall of Jericho for seven days. On the seventh day, the Israelites shouted and the walls crumbled down. A tale of perseverance. Listening to the preacher, Pratt was struck with a sense of clarity for the first time since Gunn's dismissal. In that moment, I was like, this is about James. James is going to get this. Is going to be okay, says the actor. So Chris Pratt, being a a deeply spiritual man, as we all know, has a spiritual... Mm -hmm moment and realizes we've got to go to bat he understands the text right there yes. you go perfectly you got to go to bat for james now to james gunn's credit his actors the people that work for him they love him they are all devastated palm clementoff mantis when she gets you can find a video of her getting the news that james gunn isn't going to that he's been fired and she's in the middle of doing press and somebody just asks her about it she bursts into tears like they all really like this guy. He's a likable guy. You see him in interviews and stuff. It's like, Mm -hmm. he seems like a good hang, likable, self-deprecating, funny, beautifully broken, all that stuff. And so what's her face? Gamora, what's her name? Zoe Saldana is like at his house cooking dinner for him, you know, after he gets fired. Like they all band together. They all 
act like the found family they hope you'd be. And Pratt organizes an open letter to Disney asking for Gunn to be reinstated and goes around and gets all the actors to sign it, which is pretty incredible. There's nobody that's not willing to do this. And all the while, Pratt is texting Gunn verses from the Bible, including this one from the book of James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Amazing. So Gunn apologizes. He is fired July 2018. He is rehired March 2019. The firing happened very quickly when the thing happened. You have to imagine that the rehiring was in works for a while. Yeah. Which means the guy was... He was back on tap quickly. He went and he took a slap on the wrist. He went and stood in the corner for five minutes and then he came back. It's, and it's it was like, just until like it, they felt safe announcing it. I mean, I don't know how much of a conspiracy theorist to be about this, but it almost feels like they never really had any intention of letting Gunn go. He's... yeah. Although the fact that he took Suicide Squad and moved hardcore in the DC direction maybe says he was actually fired. but Or it says that he knew how to take advantage of a situation. Yeah, which we know he's smart. Anyway, the Disney Brain Trust, our good friends at the Disney Brain Trust. I know, guys. What will really sell this yeah. is if DC hires me on top of you for even more money. Of course, that may drive up my price. Yeah. Anyway, but James, it'll sell the narrative that you're looking for. James Gunn's doing just fine. Man. He considered it all joy when he faced this trial because uh, Chris Pratt, Christian Pratt, I should say, told him to. And he got he went and did some DC stuff. He did Suicide Squad. Ha ha ha! They accidentally killed a camp full of their own friends. Isn't that funny? The Suicide Squad thought that they were killing bad guys, but actually we just saw a five-minute violent action scene where the whole joke was they messed up the locations and they killed a bunch of innocent people. Oh, what card? Peacemaker series comes out of that. (laughs) He shot his racist father in the forehead. I finally got that guy. What an emotional, beautiful, cathartic moment. We'd all like to shoot our racist fathers in the forehead. So So in other words, what I'm saying is James Gunn gets to really be real James Gunn a little bit more for DC. He's working on properties that will let him be super James Gunny, not anywhere near as James Gunny as he was in the nineties, because that would get him put in jail. But, uh, but maybe he gets a little bit out of his system. I don't know, because Guardians 3 did feel fairly muted. We'll talk about that. But anyway, then he, as I'm sure we all know, becomes head of DC Studios. And now... Mr. James Gunn, Mr. Troma filmmaker, Mr. Exploitation Outsider, PG porn, James Gunn. Is, he's got Superman. He's got Superman. And he wants to make it all about kindness. That's what I've heard. And the biggest irony of all, I'm kind of excited. And I think maybe he can pull it off. I think he can pull it off. Yep, after seeing Guardians 3, I think he can pull it off. Guardians 3, as we will now discuss, feels like James, we do have a new mature James Gunn that's actually worked through things a little bit. After everything that we've discussed about this guy, matures matures the word. that I, I wouldn't say that Guardians 3 is a very, a very mature movie, but it's... For it's, him. But it is for him. It's, it is for him. And it is maybe for Marvel. Yeah, it's... Well, we'll we'll get to big picture thoughts, and it, and it shows, yeah, it shows I, a maturation process that makes you, me hopeful. It is for oh, Superman, it, it very is, hopeful. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to watch a person actually 
be an auteur where you know they're working out their own stuff. You can trace Steven Spielberg's relationship with his father through what's happening in his various films. And James Gunn's that kind of guy. <laughs> whatever he's thinking about, whatever he's processing, mm-hmm. it's going to end up in his screenplays. This movie does make it feel like he's reached some relative level of peace. He still likes killing. He still likes goo and organ. I mean, he's still a sicko. He's always going to be one apart from Christ, but seems like he's comfortable in his skin. And I don't know, some of the moral ambiguity you talked about, like the, and then I said, actually, the problem with Guardians 2 in particular is that it has no moral ambiguity. This movie feels much better anchored in that. We have a villain. In a moral universe. Yeah. We have yeah. a villain who's actually worth hating. Yep. I actually, rem- I actually, maybe the only Marvel villain that's truly worth, or like, it's hard to think of someone else who's actual, who is actually as villainous. Like, this is sort of, you have Phase One Loki, yeah, who's like a theatrical kind of a right. mustache twirler villain. That's right. Villain. And well, then yeah, you have villains with with more character to them. Thanos. Thanos has more character to him. Loki has more character to him. But just in terms of straight up hateful villainy, like evil. Oh yeah, Loki doesn't feel e- not, not even Thanos feels evil on the level that that this guy just feels objectively evil. Thanos has a philo- philosophical goal where he thinks that he's morally in the right, and I guess this guy does too. But it's really thinly veiled. And With Thanos, you're actually meant to sort of. Like and empathize with Thanos. You don't like it when he throws Gamora off the cliff. When he does something that hurts one of your characters, (laughs) you kind of hate Thanos. But but mostly you're just, nah, Thanos. He's kind of an interesting dude. Yeah, (laughs) He's on a quest against all odds to do what he thinks is right. Right. And he's a genocidal maniac, but it's kind of likable for all that. I am so hyper attuned to whether I feel good about hating a villain because I don't like... I mean, as I've said many times on this podcast, I do not like villains that are just set up to hate. When it feels like somebody's working out their trauma with bullies or they've just written a character to be to pour beer on baby Groot so that we can hate him. It's like, that guy wouldn't have really been that mean. You just made him that mean because... Because you wanted to justify what you wanted to do to him. Yeah, I really don't like... You wanted us all to feel good about punishing him. Right. Whereas... John Wayne just believed in morality. So it was like, this guy has broken the law. I am a deputy of the law. I am going to shoot him in the heart. We are all going to feel very good about the whole exchange, including the bad guy. Like he knows he should Mm -hmm. be shot in the heart. And I like that sort of thing. And then I like movies that really play with the morality. But when it's a Marvel movie and it's kind of, it thinks it's playing with it, but it's not, it can get really icky really fast. And I actually had a conscious thought about halfway through this movie where I relaxed and thought, this villain is genuinely hateful, but he's something that I feel good hating. And it doesn't actually feel like the movie has a big chip on his shoulder as much as James Gunn is obviously working out his own trauma through Rocket, who is obviously his favorite character and his avatar and this whole thing. The movie is more about moving past the high evolutionary than it is about getting nasty revenge and extracting yeah this is this is not about Mm -hmm. and it never feels like it's about enacting revenge on the high evolutionary it feels like it's about moving past him and it feels more Mm -hmm. like you know what like like with ego ego sucks he's your bad dad he deserves to die blow up his brain you know like ego has some of james (laughs) gunn's hatred of fathers 
written into him. But this guy, it's just, yeah, he's evil. He's terrible. He deserves to go down. But there's always going to be another guy out there who is misusing people, especially in the way James Gunn sees the world. It's like the world is full of sadists who want to remake things in their own image. That's just, those guys are actually a dime a dozen. This guy happens to be a more competent version of that. And yeah, we need to defeat him. But I don't know. This movie actually has the most saving of of almost any Marvel. Like superheroes never save anybody. And Superman never just flies into a burning building to get a woman and her baby. Any like we just, we're so much about violent action these days. But this movie actually goes out of its way to- Let's save absolutely everyone that we can imagine saving. And, and raccoons. And the the semi-quasi-villain Adam yeah. Warlock. Well, yeah, and let's go out of our way throughout the movie to say we don't kill anymore. Like, we've actually all matured. Right, yeah. there's one moment where we go out of... There's the sort of second act where everything's going to crap, where we're going to go out of our way to say we are killing, because Peter Quill's going to say, kill them all! And then, right. and then the guy's going to be like, oh! And he's going to be like, now I will kill you! But that's just kind of like the second act dark. It's the Empire Strikes Back thing. Now we're in the villain's lair. If we don't kill, we're not going to save our friend. And we're not going to survive. And these people all, by extension of being the high evolutionaries henchmen for decades, deserve it. On a level that when we're breaking into the gross body. Bio world. None of these people deserve anything. Even though they're connected to the high evolutionary, they're just innocent people trying to do a job and... Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Nobody here deserves death. We're not going to kill anybody. We're going to we'll just hurt them badly. We're going to we're going to ray gun them or whatever. You know, (laughs) but we'll actually add a line of dialogue. Like it actually feels like Black Widow. It's like we're breaking dude out of prison, and we're just. I think if you follow the logic of what would kill someone, we've killed many, many people. We've caused an avalanche. We've and the movie just doesn't stop to doesn't care. This doesn't care one way or another. It's not trying to make a comment about it it just doesn't care james gunn actually sometimes he wants to be like he wants you to know when his characters are killing he wants you to get a kick out of it but he also wants you to know when they're not like he's very calibrated to the fact that part of the juice of a movie of this is taking life and that's part of that's one of the tools he's playing with one of the palettes he's one of the colors he's painting with and he's going to use it intentionally and these these are all he's trying to show i think a an attempt at least at maturity or growth on the part of each one of these characters too, where in a previous Guardians movie, in a previous life, they all would have just mercilessly killed the crap out of these people to get what they wanted. And Gamora, who's been reset, still is advocating. She's still in that stage. (coughs) She hasn't matured, like she got reset Mm -hmm. and they're beyond her. And Peter keeps trying to calibrate her to where they're at now and it's just not who she is. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's the tension that they're playing with is we're actually trying to be the good guys now. We're trying to be the heroes. We're not that we're the guardians of the galaxy. We set up a sign that says we're the guardians of the galaxy. You can come hire us to protect you, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, it also, it does have a vengeance thread, which is that for Quill, who's processing his anger about losing his girl Mm -hmm. and his anger at his friend being killed for Quill's going to treat the high evolutionary like, I'll get revenge on you if I can. Not that he, he was even targeting, he doesn't even care, but he's going to, man, he's going to be as merciless as possible towards the henchmen, especially that one guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whose brain he's, cyborg brain he's trying to cut out. <laughs> yeah, it's important to say these are all, this, yeah. this whole it's discussion is relative. relative. It's and, very, and, and part yeah. of me wondered, I'm like, 
I've we've spent so many years now talking about Guardians 2 and just how gross James Gunn is. I think just by just any amount of pulling back was going to feel pretty good about this. <laughs> like, like we're sort of yeah. we're desensitized. It's like by yeah. any by any actual standard, this movie is still pretty gleefully violent and mean in a way that it shouldn't be, I think. But it just does a better job of delineating good and evil and yeah. Yeah, it it does a better job at and adding can, weight to the villain's violence. Yeah, and then even when you've got your cannon fodder monsters, well, we've got some monsters that can be redeemed, and then we have cannon fodder monsters that are designed and programmed for one purpose, and that's to kill. Mm-hmm. We'll call them Hellspawn. And we'll call them Hellspawn, and we'll make them look like Hellspawn. Right. Like something out of your nightmares. But even there, I actually feel good about how characterized they are. Oftentimes in like the first of the Avengers duology. I know. There's like thinking of those dumb monsters. Hey, it's generic monsters. Thanos has hound things. Yeah. You just blast those away. But it's like these guys, they have weight as characters. They're just the kinds of characters that that you want to destroy. Yeah. You don't feel bad about. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing generic about them, but but there is, they're, typologically evil they're demonically coded right yeah visually yeah which brings up this is sorry for jumping around but james gunn this movie i felt more than the first two this guy just will create worlds like it's nothing Mm -hmm. visually make them distinctive give you worlds and give you yeah give you these hellspawn characters that have a visual weight and he'll just do that with everything and he'll do it like 10 times in the course of an hour it's like man and you see too the Amazing. like if you think about Rocket's friends, yeah, right, like the horrifying monstrosities that those creatures are. Mm-hmm. Made me think of Sid's house from Toy Story One. Yeah, that's what everybody. <laughs> right, but it's like these are just like they're just tests to destroy. So how horrifying can I make something cute, and how monstrous can I make something sweet, and how intelligent can i make some like it's just all like i'm mad scientisting the crap out of this so that i can perfect the monsters and the, the angels and i'm going to populate my worlds with my angels and protect it with my monsters but i've got all of these in between mm-hmm. like just even the fact that that's the way that he he <coughs> approached it and you can think about it like you can stop and pause and be like oh i like there's a sense to all of this, like the horrifying little mm-hmm. bunny creature mm-hmm. it, who's super sweet and innocent, like all of it is just, it's really yeah. smart. It's really smart. And it felt, the whole thing felt more, just like everything had more weight to it. All of his visual creativity felt tied to the morality of the movie the whole time. Mm-hmm. And you wonder how much sure of that, he, true. how much of these characters he's pulled out of his childhood box. Yeah, just, like, yeah I'm sure it's right, all of it. Like, right. which of these you want to think all of Rocket's friends are actually just some crayon drawing that he pulled out and was like, ha, mm-hmm. little James, you never thought this would make it on the screen. Mm-hmm. Well, there's been, a, shot, there's been right? a quote going around on Twitter from Gunn when he got Guardians 1. He said, I did not want to make Star Wars, but I wanted to make a movie that would make other people feel like I felt when I saw Star Wars. And man, I wish more people thought like that. Like, yeah. don't just mm-hmm. take the IP, but... Create something new that right. can do what the IP did. And yeah, just 
the joy of invention in this movie is strong. You get to go to all these different worlds, even the ones that kind of have that icky gun grossness, like the body place. It's like, these are the bad guys. And their whole thing is perversions of nature. And it actually, (laughs) it's appropriately icky. Yeah. And yeah, just like the color palette, the different planets. Minus the innuendo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's stuff that I would not do if I was James Gunn. Probably many things like that. But it's just so refreshing to see a movie with real invention on the screen, like real creativity, something to appreciate. Um, that, that feels like it's somebody's vision and not just kind of generic CGI environments or, yeah or whatever, I guess. And it's all CGI. Yeah. That's part of the interesting uh, thing about it too is, you know, I mean, people are in fact that I uh, was just looking yesterday, what people are saying as they're trying to connect dots for Superman and they're like, oh, look at all this crappy visual cgi stuff is he gonna cgi the crap out of the superman worlds and it's like guys just because star wars used puppets doesn't mean that no there is a creative way to use cgi and an inventive way to use it and it is the future yeah i mean mean, so let's just live in the modern age yeah like and there's a time to use visual effects and it's all going to be of a piece whatever what you should do is you should see it not just as a part of James Gunn's world building, but as a part of the visual world of the MCU mm-hmm. where everything is CGI in the MCU. Anyway, that's just a hundred percent of the tools that you have. And so it's like, yeah, okay. He can create a totally cartoon CGI world. That's interesting. And that's unique. If that's the direction he chooses to go, there's also some like weird claymation. He, type stuff or style or in guardians two that he plays with that pulls on some of those eighties palette themes. And it's like, well, he can do a whole lot actually. And if he wanted to do a grounded, more practical effect movie, you feel like he can do that because he understands how movies work and he understands how visuals work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's able to do that in an entirely CGI environment is the proof of it. I don't know who outside of George Lucas, I don't want to give him too much praise for this, but I mean, really like who, who's done a better job in, in building a CGI world. I'm sure we could think of some. I'm sure that there are any number of people that you could like, you would, okay, maybe Lord and Miller, but that we're talking about a very stylized, different style of. And the fact is there's a ton of practical effects in Guardians. Yeah. There's all kinds of like. Guardians 3 has a million. yeah, all the, an- the yeah, all the animals on uh, the people on Counter Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Everything's practical. I mean, he just mixes everything as he pleases and gets away with it. Yeah. Oh, I, I do want to say the destruction of Counter Earth did feel a little thrown away. We were saying everything mm-hmm. was morally calibrated much better. That was the one part where I was just like, eh, okay, I guess this is just a plot point. We're not supposed to care about these innocent people that I, we've actually spent some time with. I would say he. He did want us to care. Maybe he didn't have time. That's what it felt like to me. It, but like, there, there's some understated, like... Yeah, M- you understand that. Gamora's going to see couples holding each other, and then they're going to go up in flames. And Yeah. Yeah, just boom, boom, boom. It just felt like everything in the movie has to be fast. And, yeah, I think 30 seconds of, you know, even Princess Leia looking sad after Alderaan would, yes, would have gone yeah, a long yeah. way there. But Well, but, that's the that's the kill all these guys moment. Yeah. Right? 
Hmm. That's the actual emotional Princess Leia looking out the window is Peter Quill saying, kill everybody. Like, yeah. Because hmm. right before that is when he says, you're just going to, dis- they're in their little dialogue where he's like, owls dealing meth or whatever it is. Yeah. Octopus is dealing meth yeah. on street corners is your idea of perfection. He's like, no, it's not. That's why I'm going to do what I've done many times. <laughs> Start over with a clean slate. It's and a then great he, like, scene. Initiates the launch sequence in the self-destruct mode on this planet. And that's when Quill's like, all right, just <coughs> kill them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it is as bad as you said, but it's also... The Even story in that moment, the, the the beats of the story are well calibrated. We just needed a few shots or some mm-hmm. a musical choice or something to actually lend weight that the story wanted us to feel, but that it wasn't quite to the destruction of this whole world full of full of characters we've actually interacted with and enjoyed. Sat on the couch with, yeah, right. But there again, you sort of realize maybe that just is too grim and we already have a movie that's been a lot of grim melodrama. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do we really want to see the family that we've met huddled together as they get blown up? Maybe it's just too much. I don't know. I think you might have actually gotten a shot of the husband and wife Did holding you? each other. Maybe. Well, yeah. What, what, there was a couple that were just sort of like embraced. And Gamora looks at them. It's almost like she's going to try to help them, but then they're and gone. And then they just get obliterated yeah. <laughs> so, as the planet explodes. And there are a yeah. couple of other little beats like that where she's trying to grapple with what what's happening and the planet's just blowing up and blowing up all these people around her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, be that as it may, doesn't direct track from the larger points. <laughs> no. No. I guess we should take a step back. I mean, what did you guys, I guess we all liked this movie, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I liked it. I thought, it, here's a word that's going to sound after all this discussion really incongruous, in but sweet was actually kind of the word that I came away with. I am not bothered by animal cruelty in movies. And I suspect you guys probably aren't either all that much. I don't know. Did you find the rocket flashback stuff really hard to watch? No. Did you? I mean, I thought it was emotionally affecting and sad and all that, but I didn't find it like I have to turn my eyes away. No, I didn't find it. I didn't find it like that. I, I read a bunch of reviews and everybody's just like, I saw that PETA came out with a statement. Yeah, like I could hardly watch this thing. I've seen, you know, and that to me is just like what a degenerate society we live in. Well, PETA's statement was like in praise of this movie doing more for animal rights than any movie of something crazy like that. Right. Yeah, I think if somebody's the kind of worthless person who thinks it's sad that an experiment's ever been done on a raccoon, but doesn't mind watching movies where people just get blown to bits, then they will be very bothered by this movie in a way that the three of us weren't. So I think actually for a lot of people, their experience of this movie is as a much darker movie than I think we actually took it mm-hmm. as, for whatever that's worth. But yes, that all that by way of agreeing with you that it is sweet. I don't know. I wonder about this movie. My big picture thoughts are I'm really I really don't know how it will hold up like if I saw it again. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm yep. less than 24 hours from having seen this Likewise. film. Yeah, I saw it on Sunday and circumstances that I won't go into were such that I didn't have a lot of time to really process it since then. And yeah, I'm just like I could see this movie really souring, souring quite badly. Um, and maybe it won't, maybe it will, I don't know, but I could certainly conceive of that because it is, it, there are things, like when I step back and I look at it objectively, I'm like, okay, James Gunn's, even if he's a sicko that's gotten some therapy, he's still a sicko. And 
so much of the movie is kind of just shambling and disjointed. I don't know if you guys thought it was funny. I didn't think it was funny at all. I thought there were a couple good jokes that had been burned in the trailers already. Most uh, of the good jokes were burned in the trailers. There were a couple of moments. I can't, I'm can't. i struggling to recall what they were. There were a couple of moments that... Yeah, thought, you were laughing pretty hard for a couple times next to me. I, I mean, I don't know that I was even laughing at the jokes. There was just... But the audacity of... Yeah, there was just some things that were just like, I can't believe that we're doing that. Yeah. And that's pretty hilarious that that's what we're doing. I don't know what it... There was a Drax Mantis metaphor scene that I laughed at. But it, and he, of course, he went really crude at the end. And I was like, ah. Of course, yeah. Of course. I mean, like, I, that was pretty funny and to, to me until... Okay, you. yeah, yeah. The metaphor thing I thought was... I enjoyed that one. Yeah. I actually liked the joke where Mantis made the dude fall in love with Drax. I thought that was a funny joke. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I didn't even care. I can't like, quite... <laughs> <laughs> can't I, quite get there. I mean, I know it, it is funny, but it's also just like, oh, no, I don't know. Hey, it's I, very heteronormative in its way. That's I mean, actually you know. what I thought. I thought it was actually a that's pretty good... Bro, I thought it was actually a pretty good bro joke. Yeah. I did not feel any, <laughs> I did not feel any tension like we're trying to do some gay thing here. Like Drax is going to be like, oh, man. No, if I was a gay person, I'd be offended. Because it's, right. it's like, it's, why is it bad that this person should be... <laughs> why is it with- funny that she made the dude fall in love with... Drax, <laughs> because it's actually funny. Well, now like, now you're making me think counter, of Paddington. It's actually counter. It's know. like the same joke in Paddington. Oh, and that guy's the funniest part of both Paddington. He is. Movies. You're right. That guy's hilarious. All right. <sighs> yeah. I, yeah. Okay. I just snickered just thinking of the guy from Paddington. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's amazing. I liked the humor. Not like none of it made me laugh. Mantis and. Drax and Nebula just as the three characters that didn't have anything to do besides just be kind of quirky and fun the whole time. Yeah. I love spending time with those three. I mean, that is what comes across in all three of these movies and especially this one is James Gunn just has great affection for his characters. He writes lovable characters. Cut to Nebula's face was often a got a smirk out of me. I don't know. Like it was pretty on the nose, but just like we're going to cut to Drax and Manus are going to be doing something ridiculous, and then we're going to cut to Nebula's face. Yeah, I mean, she's the perfect like, straight woman, and yeah. they're so annoying. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's, she's such a stand-in for how I don't know. It's I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd watch a whole movie just of them. I mean, they were fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where I'm like, I don't know how well this movie co- holds up because it doesn't actually have a good Peter Quill story. He's kind of a sourpuss the whole time. And but I liked him in it the whole time. Yeah, I don't know. It's the movie that I most question whether it should have worked, but man, I cannot deny it worked. Every emotional beat, I cried, I didn't laugh, but I was invested. Yeah. I I was excited by the action. Like it all worked on its intended level. There's some part of me that wonders whether it will again and whether any of it really should. Yeah, but- I, I'm not sure, but the moments of just like kindness, like Nebula carrying Peter mm. to his bed. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything more affecting in the movie to me than that. No. Well, Nebula, Nebula for being such a nothing character seemingly in the first one, you really actually do start to see some architecture there where you're like, the first one, there's three things that feel like, did he mean for this? And it's the villain being so lame. It's Nebula being kind of lame. And it is Yondu actually a father figure. And you watch the first one in hindsight. It's hilarious that the villain is as lame as he is, actually. It's yeah. it's all just a the punchline is Peter doing his little famous dance and the guy's distracting just, you, you big moron. Yeah, like this guy's just an oaf. <laughs> like he was never a threat. He's an idiot. 
he looks like a Star Wars bad guy, but that doesn't mean he is a Star Wars bad guy, which is a pretty funny. And then Nebula just feels like henchwoman in that one, but her storyline, Nebula is my favorite character, I think, in the trilogy. She's yeah, if got you a, look back, it's like, oh, that's angst. That's yeah. actual emotional angst. She's got a great great story and the, my only regret is that she and peter didn't actually end up together i think that would have been great and so yeah i don't know where i was going with that but yeah, i guess just james gunn loves his characters and it's fun to hang out with them and the movie just as a vibe it's a great movie just well that, and mm-hmm. also when you think of i i think karen gillian Gil, gillian or gillian, gillian or gillian i think yeah. okay she's just fantastic yeah. like i think it's really easy to just look past the performance and how how straight it is and then how nuanced it can be mm-hmm. like she's really impressive yeah on one level you could you'd be forgiven for thinking all she's doing is walking around doing she a clint so eastwood much does a ton, more. Yeah. she brings so much to it. actually what what i think of is like the weird emotional nuances you bring to a character like bj mm-hmm. like like <laughs> yep. that's a really challenging <laughs> thing to do mm-hmm. but oh, like but she does that sort of thing where like Zoe Saldana's she's a pretty wooden actress. She's not a great actress and she doesn't really have a lot to perform. Although she does a nice job in this movie. She's good in this movie. Yeah. But in general, I just don't think of her as I think he wrote to her woodenness. I think he was actually able due to whether I don't know whether he wanted what happened to happen in the Avengers movies, but I think they did him a favor. It actually allowed him to reset a romance that was lame and do something more interesting and write to her strengths instead of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to see her go soft at the end, finally, and yeah. then to have, give her that little send off with her actual, her buddies, the Ravagers. newfound family Yep, that we had to pretend like, or we had to not know about or understand for the whole movie. Like that was all really sweet. Yeah. And well done. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot that really works. Rocket's story obviously works. I mean, doggone it, if the line didn't get me, the moral of the story, what was it? It's not the hands that... Uh, Made us, it's the hands behind the hands. It's the hands behind the hands. The fact that he <laughs> can write a line like that and get away with it and have it be as emotionally effective and have it be delivered by a character in heaven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with robot a, arms. a cyborg otter. <laughs> right, right before a little squirrel dude comes back to life and leaves heaven for a little while and she says, your work is not done. I mean, that's so easy to be horrible. Well. And he pulled it all off. It's really, that's the thing about each of the Guardians movies. Like, they are a mess. You do the wrong thing and you've got Jupiter Ascending or one of these movies that people make fun of for years. And each years. of them are a mess. And, but what they never lose is an emotional propulsion and through line that just keeps you moving forward through the movie and keeps you hooked in. Right keeps you on the hook and you can get outside of it and reflect on it and decide that you hate it, but you're going to be along for the ride. You may even like have moments of discomfort, but you're still going to be along for the stupid ride. Mm. And you're going to sit there and be like, this doesn't make sense. These are plot mechanics. This doesn't like, and you're also going to be like, and it doesn't matter because I'm onto the next emotional story beat or up, oh, we punctured it with a good joke. Mm. And, and oh, isn't that visually interesting? And uh, like, yeah, oh, was, oh look, was... he changed the music. And oh, look, like there's just always something going on and propelling you forward through the story. And he just like keeps pulling things off that it feels like he shouldn't be able to pull off. 
Yeah. And that, but I agree with you a hundred percent. I think that's why we're on a scene to scene, just like moment you're invested and he's really good. And I love that. I, the question I have is if I watched it again, would it matter how, like, for example, I think the big example, thorough spoilers here, everything about the ending from the sort of non-dispatch dispatch of the villain to the arbitrary nature of, well, we all need to split up now. None of that feels inevitable. None of that feels earned. Like on a rational, emotionally, like you're saying, it works and you don't even really think about it. But then you look back and you're like, okay, I guess our story just kind of shambled to the end and everybody did yeah. what felt good yeah. for the audience. Not necessarily what they would do. Like it was Nebula actually there. Was Peter actually there? Had they actually had the movie, had the story actually earned it with the choices that they made? Mantis drag. And eh, nah, it feels more like that's just what we want. And then we want them all to dance. Even now Drax. Drax. Oh yeah. Dra Drax felt the most arbitrary to me. The most like actually now I'm smart because I'm a dad. Right. Like, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Well, is, yeah. That's the yeah. thing is he's not just playing with our. I could just feel the cheat of it. Yeah. You know? It is a cheat. It's and yet cheat. Dave ba Batista has huge dad energy. And so. And they just like unleashed it. Yeah. And you're just like, ah, and, and you go with it. And now you can retrofit the story like. And it totally retrofits perfectly. It, it totally maps. It's like it's the dude <laughs> is just angry because they stole his family. He misses his daughter. He's been processing his trauma by just being stupid and by being crass. But now and it's angry. like, okay, I'll be a dad again. But did James Gunn do any of the work to give us any of the connective tissue or cause and effect to get us there or to get us to Peter going back to his grandfather or any of it? No, not really. And yet each right. scene works. There's a broad, yeah. thorough line that works plot-wise. There's a, an emotional thorough line that's fine-tuned and that yeah. pulls us through. It's just really interesting to see a movie that is so kind of stop and start and flashbacks. And like, there's so much that... Well, and part of why it works actually is not just like the arbitrary nature of it, but I think there's an arbitrary nature to how people find or there's a way that people find or stumble into redemption in real life that feels arbitrary that I think that he understands on an intuitive level and plays with. Yeah. Like, like how many, God is, the actual God of the actual universe is just that good that somebody as jacked up as Drax can become a dad one day and it can change his life and he can become the guy who dances. And like, it, you can say that that's arbitrary, but also that's kind of just how God made the world and how powerful fatherhood can be. Right. And to change somebody. And that's one thing that I think Gunn understands on an intuitive level as the little God of his little universes is like when you have any kind of family and are trying to process any and face down any kind of demons, any number of little things can be unlocked if you're willing to face them that you would that are unexpected and that seem like they come out of nowhere. Like we take the I can't take the lock off my own heart and face down my demon. If I do, I'm gonna die. But my friend just might accidentally do it for me. Mm -hmm. I might discover it and accidentally unlock it. And now I feel free to go face down my demons and move past them. Like, and I never saw that coming when I stumbled into this friendship. But look, here we are, and look at how that happened. How does that even happen? But that's what happens to people. Like, 
I mean, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I think you're you're describing exactly how the movie works and how how effective it is in doing that. And yet, I would never tell if I was teaching a screenwriting class. Like <laughs> yeah. the, the whole <laughs> point of storytelling is not to make it feel arbitrary. It's to find the connective tissue that we don't always see in real life. The reason we like stories make it feel inevitably is it's sense making is because we make sense of a world that feels random and arbitrary and cruel sometimes. Even though as Christians we know it's not, it can feel that way and. Good stories. We put a narrative on it, whether the narrative's true or not. Right. And again, good stories mm-hmm. give us good narratives. They say, well, being evil eventually leads inevitably to a demise. And, and a, a good story makes that demise both inevitable and surprising. And James Gunn is very good at... Surprising. Surprising, yeah. And good at actually sort of emotionally yeah. backfilling it enough and just being talented enough that he can make it feel inevitable and that you... It's like he uses your own heart against you. You so want that for Drax that whether it makes sense or not, you just go with it. Yeah, well, and part of what I said about to you after I came out of the movie was the one thing that you feel from Gunn as a creator is like he's incredibly loyal. Yeah, he wants that for Drax. He wants that for all, like whatever kind of monster you think he is, he loves his creations, he loves his characters, and he wants a good ending for each of them. And he's going to try to figure out a good ending for each of them. And if he can't, he's going to at least leave the possibility open that I don't know how to get you to the really good ending yet, but I'm going to leave the door open for each of you to have a good ending. Mm-hmm. And that's part of like the feeling you get when they all go their separate ways. Well, I don't know how to bring Mantis to a close but what is it that she needs? Well, she needs to figure out how to be her own person. So I'm just going to leave a door open for her to go somewhere and figure that out. And what does Peter need? Well, Peter actually needs, he had some doors that were left open. He needs to go figure out how to close. I don't know how to close them for him, but he needs to go and deal with that. And Drax needs to just be a dad. And Gamora just needs to kind of be a mom. And Rocket needs to be the leader of his own team, finally. Gamora or Nebula? Nebula, Nebula, Nebula that's mean. what I meant, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And Gamora's got to relive her own journey with the Ravagers all over again. Right, she's got to go have her own Guardians of the Galaxy adventure. And- yeah, she has to have her own Guardians 2 again, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm, I love these characters. I want them to end well. These are the good endings that I think I can give them, and these are the, when I feel like I can't get them there, I can leave the doors open. I know my limit. There's a sense in which I feel like I know my limits. I know how far I've gone. I know how to tell Rocket's story. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to tell the finish the rest of these stories quite yet. And that's okay. I've got to be okay with that. And you got to be okay with that too, because we're all on this journey together. But now we can all understand Groot. Right. You know, I, mm-hmm. which I like, and it felt incredibly moving and fun. And there is part of me though, that was disappointed that it's just kind of that feeling of, I don't know. It would be very interesting to go to an alternate part of the multiverse and see James Gunn actually follow these stories through to a real conclusion where everybody has to pay an actual price. Mm-hmm. And and just, let's just see the bitter end of this thing. Like we've set up these people who are actually kind of irretrievably broken. And I, I think the movie that we were speculating that this movie would be, right. it would be interesting to see. I, I think we all kind of were relieved and cheered by the fact that 
he decided to pull back and just, yeah, actually, I like these characters. I think that they can find some real peace. Or like Jake said, if they can't, then I can position them to go on that journey off screen and let's leave it there. I, I There is part of me that would love to see dark James Gunn minus his therapy just take this to the bitter end and actually see like what is because you feel that would be honest right? i think that would be more honest yeah i think that would be more honest to the characters that we met in guardians one peter quill he can't just go back and reclaim his childhood he lost it yeah rocket's not just going to become the leader rocket needs to die rocket needs to go to heaven and be with his animal buddies like rocket rocket hates life rocket is a life-hating broken little killer Let's do the Cowboy Bebop ending. This is a dark story, actually. It, that, it's always played with that. It's always been that. And there's a sense in which this movie is pretty disingenuous and suddenly telling us it was a comedy all along instead of a tragedy. There's a sense in which I feel like I should be irritated by that. And, and it's just a testament to James Gunn's skill and to these actors' likability and to all kinds of things that I'm not. But I don't know. Maybe the fact that he's just benevolent and wants to say, eh, sometimes when you make the right choice, random wacko redemption happens and you all dance to the lamest song of the early oddies. Maybe I should be happy about that. And maybe I, and I was happy about that. The movie, I think we all had the same experience, which is this is a delightful end to the trilogy. And yeah, that's what I felt. I came out thinking, I was expecting something really mean, and there were a lot of mean parts, but what I actually got was something really sweet. Right. And the, it's impossible, and I, it's impossible to process this movie through without processing it through the lens of future Superman. Um, and, and so maybe that's not fair to the trilogy, and not fair to the movie, and not fair to the series, and not fair to the MCU. But it, I think it is fair to James Gunn, because James Gunn is also needing to make a statement with this movie about what to expect Mm -hmm. from him moving forward. And so can he give us (coughs) hope? Mm -hmm. Actually, can he give us redemption? Can he be sweet? Can he uh, give us good versus evil? He definitely tried to answer those questions. Yeah. And he, the son of a gun literally pulled it off. He gave us like, if you walked out of a Superman movie and had the same feelings that you walked out of Guardians 3 with, you would feel like you had seen a good superhero movie. I, I walked movie. out feeling like I would watch in an alternate universe. I would not just watch James Gunn's Superman. I would watch James Gunn with stupid Chris Pratt as his Superman, like, which is saying something because Chris Pratt sucks. He's horrible. He in no way deserves to be Superman or Clark Kent. But I, I would like I came away thinking, in this guy's hands, I could buy into even Chris Pratt as his Clark Kent Superman, I think. Like that was the feeling I had. Now, okay, give me a couple of days to sit on it and I'll come back around. I know. But that's how I felt. And we both I don't think I said this to you, but I think we we see the all-star Superman storyline being the direction he has to go and will inevitably go, right? Like, that's what I thought coming out. He obviously hmm. has a love. Actually, that's what I thought after I watched Guardians 2, even before this one. He has a love for the larger lore and the B and D listers. And just mm-hmm. the thing about Grant Morrison's Superman run was that he brought all these lame old DC characters into it. And he it wasn't just 
normal world with Superman in it. It was DC world of crazy mm-hmm. silver age superhero stuff with Superman. And then I think that's James Gunn can do a very good see, version see, of that. I, I never actually read that. I've read your, I've read you writing about it and heard you talk about it. And I actually accidentally stumbled into one lazy afternoon watching an animated version of it with the kids. I haven't the, seen that. The All-Star Superman I've read story. It, but... The in the animated version of it was lame. Yeah, I'm sure. It was lame and stupid. Those DC adapt animated adaptations often are. Yeah, this was lame and stupid, and I don't ever want to watch one of those again. But but the storyline is still great. Yeah. You know, it's just he's been poisoned and he's going to die and there's nothing he can do about it. Luther's gonna win. And it's just a matter of time. So what does he do before it's over? And then what does he do? He keeps being Superman. That's what. And it's like, that's really cool. That's a really cool story. And he keeps being Superman to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not just the great big things. It's the little. Yeah. I mean, every day get the cat out of the tree things. He's using his. And it's like, that's what you love about Superman. And that's like. Yeah, I don't think I. And he's trying to figure out how to set things up for Lois for the future and some other things are going on too. But it's just like, you know, okay, well, I'm going to die and that's okay. I've got to make my peace with it. And then I just got to keep being Superman until I can't be Superman anymore. And if I can fix this or if I can write as many things as I can, there's nothing else to do. I hope that's what. I mean, I think that it is still very plausible that James Gunn chooses to make Superman a three dimensional character, which is a. Huge mistake, because if he does that, he'll run into exactly what Man of Steel ran into, which is um, Superman actually wasn't designed to be a beautifully broken. But you can guy. create a beautifully broken world around him. Oh no, yeah, Super James Gunn can make a good <laughs> Superman movie, and he can make it as dark and dismal and suicidal as he wants. It's just that Superman has to be the father figure that stands astride all that and is not corrupted by it. And but James Gunn basically needs to adapt the most famous set of panels from the all-star superman run which is just a little scene where a girl is standing on top of the building in a building and she's about to throw herself off and then superman shows up and gives her a little speech about how there's always hope and talks her down i can't do it justice but it's just very moving that this guy that could be and should be and is saving the world took the time to save one person. I can actually make myself cry talking about it. I mean, just the Christ-like quality of Superman. Stopping and seeing the one kid. The one kid, yeah. It's the anti-Zack Snyder's Superman leveling a whole city and not caring to even try and take the fight to the moon. People famously did a parody of that where the girl's about to jump off and then suddenly Superman and Zod (laughs) (laughs) come rampaging through and blow up the building. (laughs) That's that's awesome. They made a great point. And then poor Zack Snyder had to try to build his entire franchise around apologizing for that. But even though I think that Zod fight is my favorite bit of superhero action that anyone's ever done. In any case, yes, if Gunn can simply make Superman into the father and then everything else is broken in James Gunny and Superman fixes it, that's great. If Superman wants to make James Gunn into one of his beautiful losers, then that's terrible. It's going to be awful. And I think he gave a strong indication that he knows what he's doing in this movie, but I still don't trust him. I mean, he's James Gunn for crying out loud. Did you hear my context? I mean, I trust him more than I ever have, but. Right. 
and, and he loves the properties. I, I, what I, I trust is I trust that he loves the characters as they were designed to be. Like, well, okay, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy were a blank slate for him. Right. But I trust that he actually loves Superman. Yeah, that's, I, what, that's what I think. I think he actually loves Superman. I think he actually loves Batman. And I think he will be loyal to what makes Superman Superman and what makes Batman Batman and what makes some of those big characters who they are. And then he'll use everything else to be his sandbox for processing whatever other mean junk he's got to deal with. Yeah, and that's great. Maybe I'm being optimistic. I hope that that's true. I think that's probably true. I, I'm 90% sure that's true. But then I'm just like, let's not forget that this guy ripped a guy's arm off and then threw it at a blind woman and then decapitated. Like, this guy is... Still a monster. He, maybe he's worked through a lot of stuff. Maybe just getting it out of his system with a gleefully R-rated Suicide Squad and Peacemaker let him... But, you know... This guy hasn't yet proved that he can actually make a movie where he believes in a guy like Superman. I was just looking again at his movies to come out in the Gods and Monsters saga that he's announced for DC. He's got Swamp Thing, Mm -hmm. which could be as nasty as you want. Sure. And gross. He's got The Authority. You guys might not have heard of that. I've actually read that comic. That's came out through DC, but what was it a different imprint or something of DC? Anyway, it's it's super gross. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's just... It's extra violent, ironic, post-superhero superheroes. And his Batman storyline is, what's his face? Well, and, and, uh, and, and hold on, in The Authority, like the Superman pastiche character and the Batman pastiche character are gay lovers. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the movies in his first phase. That's The Authority. I, I just, I can't imagine ever wanting to see that. I'd like that. The, those comics are disgusting. Anyway, mm-hmm. what were you asking? The Batman storyline is the one about... Is it Ra's al Ghul's son who becomes Robin? I, I forget the exact... No, uh, it's Bruce Wayne's son, Damian Wayne. Damian, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, which I think he had with Talia al Ghul. Yeah, so yeah, he's yeah, Ra's yeah, grandson. Right. That's right, yeah. And that's a storyline about, he's in a, he's a vigilante that kills people. You know, it's, it's one of the yeah. more sort of sour Batman storylines. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the thing. I actually agree with Jake. Ninety-five percent, I think. Super, I think James Gunn is capable and probably does want to make a good superhero movie or a good Superman movie. But I'm also like, it's going to be such a total anomaly, not just in his career, but in what he's done with DC so far. What he seems to be doing with DC, otherwise, like that, I don't want to get my hopes up too much. You have to imagine the studio knows they messed up with the Snyder verse. Like they don't want another dark. Nobody wants a dark Superman. And we all know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things in favor of us just getting a great Superman story. I think we probably will. I just don't want to trust James Gunn too much. DC is such a mess. They had the blue beetle trailer. Like they don't even know what's going on with their universe, but they're dropping new IP out there. I did not see the blue beetle trailer. Oh. It was in front of the, not my showing. Really? Okay. Anything else you guys want to say about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3? I don't think so. No. I, I realize, I know he's doing a thing, 70s, 80s, 90s, now we're in the 90s music. I was hit and miss on the soundtrack. Maybe I just don't like the 90s as much. Are you a creep? I mean, I like creep as much as the next guy, but really. Okay, I'll be that guy. I'll be the snob. James Gunn's music choices have always been a little obvious. On the nose. On the nose, yeah. He's not a deep cut kind of a guy. He's like, this is what everybody was listening to. You know what? The MCU isn't a deep cut kind of guy franchise. 
eh, you know, they hired James Gunn. He's deep cut kind of guy. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's still big tent blockbuster stuff. Yeah, I guess. I don't know if I accept that. I think James Gunn could probably do whatever he wants with the soundtrack. Certainly by the third movie, he can find like the song that we sh- should have all liked instead of Creep and everybody would have been fine with it. I don't know, Dog Day, Florence the Machine was pretty lame, I thought. The back, the Beastie Boys for the big oh, I loved it. Scene. I'm sorry, I was like, oh, the Beastie Boys. Uh, that stuff is so was so not part of my world growing up that I was like, oh, this song is from the '90s, obviously. <laughs> and I was like, Beastie Boys, yay! <laughs> oh, and okay, by the way, call me basic. That's fine. But also, <laughs> uh, let me just get all the snobbery out of my system, <laughs> guys. Fake the camera. Yeah, never switch winners are not real winners. There's nothing all that impressive about the key, uh, one shot if it's all done in the computer. I don't know. I'm just tired of the I, cliche of the one shot fight scene. I, I don't really care. I mean, I feel like he's so good visually that he's going to give it, he's just going to use that as one technique to give it sense and structure. I thought that was a great action scene and it was, it was a, a, really it was cool a nice final scene. sort of rousing Guardians thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just really tired of that kind of thing. That particularly cliche. Yeah. Well, Okay, so there's a lot of movies now that are like, if I can just get that one, what's the extraction's got that 12-minute one-shot? Yeah. Single-shot scene. It's like 12 minutes long or something like that, action scene. Something ridiculous. So it's like a, yeah, it's a benchmark or whatever. But I was just like, ah, he's pulling out that paintbrush. I don't care. Fine. Yeah. It's all right. These sheeple, they always have to follow these trends like... Okay, we moved away from Born. I'm glad. I know I should be happy. I hate all the sort of quick cut, can't tell what's happening garbage of the early audience. He sure made you want to see everything that happened. Yeah. Or most everything that happened. So I love that we're getting action now. Post John Wick and all and a few other things, we're getting like action scenes where you can tell what's happening. I really like that a lot. So I shouldn't complain. So I won't. I'm done. It's still a its own piece of choreography that yeah, even absolutely. with the, even within if it's all done within a machine so what like there's still a it's still a dance there's still a dance to it yeah i, I guess the reason That's i maybe feel a little snobby is cuz sometimes you'll see a shot like that like like everybody was real impressed with extraction for example and it is a cool scene but they didn't shoot that in one camera shot like that they didn't actually do that. You're watching a special effect. So you get you'd appreciate a good special effect, but when there's like some person stuffing popcorn in their mouth being like, how did they do that? Nom, nom, nom. Oh, this no one's gonna mistake this for yeah, that. Because this, Guardians this, is not that I No, this is fully like, hey guys, here's a cool special effect shot. But then I said, well, I would agree with you, Ben, except I saw an interview where the interviewer was like, om nom nom, James Gunn. The Beastie Boys scene. How did you even choreograph that? Om nom nom. And James Gunn was like, "Well, it you know took a lot of you know, hard work." And but it, and it's like, it still did though. It still did because there was you had live action people, not just CGI effects going on even in the background. And so and you had to imagine even if you're like, all right, our camera here is mostly imaginary. You still have to imagine. Yeah, you're not laying track or whatever, but you're mm-hmm. or, you know. But you have to imagine it like you are laying track. Okay, I think I have a more helpful snobby thing to say. I just think that people should understand there's a difference between that. As cool as that is, there's a difference between what that's accomplishing and the kind of thing that you're seeing. 
and say Mad Max Fury Road or the Tom Cruise movies. Or Children of Men back Or Children in the day. of Men. Like the movies where you're actually seeing something that approximately happened in real time and space <laughs> that had to be choreographed, that had to like like somebody had to hit their mark there or we're we going back or we're doing the whole over. thing. Like yeah. like that's what even something like extraction, you're not really seeing that. You're seeing a really cool stitch job that creates a really cool scene. You're just mm-hmm. Okay. When you watch Guardians, what you're not seeing is, oh man, if Chris Pratt didn't hit his mark exactly, that was. So I I just want people to understand the difference, and they could still be impressed by the Chris Pratt one. Just it's just it's not the same thing. I understand. You're snobbery. Yes. So you guys have anything else? Let's see. We talked soundtrack. We talked action. Yeah. James Gunn is really good at casting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. He's awesome. Like Adam Warlock, and I know we were saying Nathan Nathan Fillion was the design, but. This guy was perfect. Like, oh, he's great, yeah. P- pouty, callow youth mm-hmm. to be your Superman analog is just great. Yeah, he's wonderful. I'm going to look up real quick and just see what it, what the actual story there is because I, I just have this memory and I want it to be right. Yeah, no, I like the Adam Warlock. We'll keep talking while you look that up. The girl that plays the his mother is great too. She does a lot with a yeah. little, like all, all those little supporting yeah. people. Yeah, mm-hmm. even the... Yeah, all the people in the Orgo world, yeah. Orgo core world. The secretary that they right. they end up manhandling, the Nathan Fillion's little f- friend that he's irritated with, like all those characters are That's really something. Are really great. Oh, Ben, we got to fill time while Jake looks this up. What else did we like? Oh, I was just comparing this to Dungeons and Dragons that we recently saw and reviewed. Just thinking about the difference between... Who's going to be Wonder Man. A true auteur. He wanted him to be Wonder Man. Huh. Fillion. That's what it was. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And Fillion wanted it too, and Feige just did not want it. And so he couldn't get him Couldn't get him in as Wonder Man, couldn't shoehorn it in, couldn't make it work, couldn't get approval, whatever. And so... Mm. That's dumb. I don't know anything about Wonder Man. Yeah, I don't remember. I feel like I've looked them up before. I don't know anything either. But, yeah, that's what it was. There you go. Then you were saying difference between a true auteur and... And those guys. And those guys, yeah. Yeah, those guys, their movie is much more innocent. <laughs> and fun. And What are we talking about? Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons versus this. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like a fun pastiche. It's good craftsmanship. That's right. But there's a vision behind this, an artist. A... Yeah. An intensity. Mm-hmm. And somebody with something to say. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy, it doesn't have any deep, big moral exactly. Maybe you could argue it does. I don't know. But James Gunn wants to make a movie that is about something. Yeah. And I think I, as an adult that's going towards 40, I still like movies where people do flips and fly. And I, mm-hmm. I like all that stuff. But I really appreciate a movie that is about something. Dungeons and Dragons, for as fun as it was, I don't know how excited I really would be to go back to it just simply because... It's like fun stuff, and then it's waiting for the next fun thing, and then it would be. And I already know the fun things; like there's nothing to really chew on. But I'll no, probably, but you'd be happy to show it to your kids, and you'd yeah. never be happy to show a James Gunn movie to your kids. No, I, yeah, I agree with that 100. Absolutely. But I would also say, as a not kid, the Guardians movies are among a handful of the only MCU movies I've withheld from every one of my kids, including my kid in high school. Mm-hmm. I just don't have any. I mean, we haven't watched anything. In the new phases, but 
Yeah, and even if you, like, is there a age where you're going to be like, yay, now my kid in high school gets to see it. it'll kind of be like, well, no, maybe he'll see it when he's older, or maybe he'll see it when he's 25, and you'll be like, great, <laughs> you saw Guardians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. I'm not trying to put down Dungeons and Dragons, but I just brought it up as an interesting comparison point, and I think that's true. Lord Miller also true auteurs, and you can tell the difference between right. them and the Dungeons guys just having fun. Maybe they'll have freedom on Dungeons 2 to really express their artistic vision and it'll be a masterpiece. I certainly hope so. Jarnathan is still better than anything uh, that's happened in cinema in the last <laughs> 50 years. That is fantastically funny. Oh. Jarnathan was great. <laughs> When's the last time a movie got as, emo- got as much emotion out of you as this Guardians movie? Are you trying to make a point about Dungeons and Dragons here? No, I'm ta- I'm trying to make a point about I think recent movies. I'm trying to think what the recent movies I've that have even been things. I can't, yeah, I can't remember what recent movies I've seen. Tar with Kate Blanchett that did not get the same emotion out of me. Not that getting big emotion is some great virtue. Yeah, I'm a fairly easy touch when it comes to that stuff. I did famously cry at Wonder Woman '84 when Pedro Pascal reunited with his daughter or whatever. But this was the movie. I will say this. I don't know what the comparison points are, but this was the movie I least resented for getting out of emotion out of me in a while. Like Dungeons and Dragons kind of got mm-hmm. emotion out of me with stupid Ugh. what's her face dying. Man. And yeah, that was, was like, not cool. Lay off movie. Not fair. I hate this character. I hate this actress. I hate everything about this. Like, how dare you? But it, it sort of mechanistically extracted the tears. Guardians. Like I said, like about halfway through the movie, I just relaxed and said, like, I can feel and I won't feel bad about feeling and I can hate this villain. I won't feel bad about hating this villain. I'm just going to put myself in James Gunn's hands. And I don't know when the last time probably that feeling has been few and far between in Marvel movies and certainly in recent Star Wars and in franchise filmmaking in general. It's like, yeah, maybe the Russo brothers will get you, but. Not because not willingly, not willingly, and not because you tr- you trusted them and gave yourself into their hands. I don't know what's your answer to the question. I don't have one. I just think that that's something. Yeah. It <clears throat> in this there's a sense in which I actually my touch point for this movie is actually Top Gun Maverick mm-hmm. because I came away feeling like, hey, there's a movie, and it's what it was supposed to be. And I don't, there's nothing I resent about it. Mm. And I don't, I don't know that I have to go back to it, but I would watch the next movie by this person. And I don't know. It's just, that's really rare these days for me. Like, and I know that we like to hate on Tom Cruise movies or whatever, but I'm going to go watch the Mission Impossible movie and I'm going to love it and enjoy it for what it is, which is going to be a bunch of nothing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, and I, well, the one thing I know is I'm not going to have to feel too bad about going and watching it and enjoying it for what it is as a bunch of nothing. And that's kind of how I felt coming out of Guardians. Like, oh, superhero movies can be great big fairy tales with good and evil and some iconography and some sweet happy endings and a fun little ride along the way. And isn't that what a superhero movie should be? Like, hey, that's a... I, When's the last time I've actually watched a superhero movie and just felt like I watched a superhero movie that is 
just a fairy tale. And it's been a while. That's just good versus evil. And I don't know that I have anything to feel bad about in this movie. I mean, there are, it's still James Gunny, but it, so it is on a relative scale, but on that relative scale, like what the Batman, that was the one I was nope. thinking of that kind of, it does work as a complete emotional experience, but it is so sort of serial killer chic that it just yeah, is tiresome. It's, it's, yeah, I don't want to go back to it. Yeah. I, I would, keep on thinking I should. No, I, I've, I even started it once and then, but it, I didn't get 30 seconds in before I was just like, yeah, no, like I just don't have any interest in going back to that movie. Well, first you got to get through like 20 minutes of the, uh, oh the guy looking goodness. through a viewfinder. Yeah. The and that's the part that's just like, yeah, I just happy don't family any... that he's about to destroy. And yeah, uh, like, uh, nope, 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 yeah. nope, nope, nope. And so I don't know. It's just like, can we just make movies that are for people? I don't, ever feel like watching rewatching things anymore this is the first movie that i felt like i probably would want to go back and see again or could go back and see again and enjoy and be looking forward to in a long time i mean i'll watch dungeons and dragons again with my wife we'll laugh but it really will be like there's 20 minutes here that i'm excited about and then there's waiting for in between i will show dungeons and dragons to my kids right and, while i'm making pizza right exactly like, and and you can tune in for Jonathan. And and, yeah, and that'll be fun. That'll yeah. be a fun time at the movies on a Friday night at the Mensal House. That's great. I like that sort of thing. And it's rare that we get that sort of thing. And anytime we can get that sort of thing, I'm happy to have it. But it's just so rare yeah. that you can just go and feel this was relatively uncomplicated in terms of how I have how I parse this as a movie. And... For a movie where a raccoon rips a guy's face off, it's one of the most morally uncomplicated <laughs> that I've seen. <laughs> I guess that's just my way of saying it's still James Gunn. But but yes, I agree with you, which is the weird part. Well, that's what I, I said. I agree. I actually said it's still James Gunn. Yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know, I know you were. You're just putting a button on it. I was just putting it. I was just like, I don't want anyone to be like, aw, that sounds great. And then <laughs> a raccoon is ripping a guy's face off. And then they're like, well... <laughs> I'm, I'm actually pretty sensitive to raccoons ripping people's faces off. There's probably some people out there. Yeah, don't watch this with your family. Yeah, no. For three <laughs> cynical adult former hipsters, it's pretty good. Hey, uh, former, sorry. Hip, former hipsters, speak one, for yourself. And one current hipster. That's right. Um, <laughs> As everyone well knows. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, Ben, how many... Oh, I really liked Adam Morlock. I guess we already kind of said he mm -hmm. was great, but I thought he was really cute. I thought he was a fun stick in the eye. Yes. <laughs> I just like, I don't know. Yeah, all of James Gunn's stuff that was passive-aggressive towards Kevin Feige was great. The yeah. stuff in the elevator where... The stuff in the elevator was... I genuinely laughed at that. That was funny, yeah. Because I just... I was laughing with James Gunn at all of the MCU. Mm. And I thought that was funny. Right. And like, I liked everything with Adam Warlock because I thought he was doing a good job of taking a big dump all over. <laughs> I don't know. I like I I felt maybe I, I probably read too much into it, but I like we had just watched a Marvel's trailer. Mm. Well, yeah, no, it just felt like here's our franchise setup guy and then i'm just gonna like throw him away yeah, yeah kinda... you can't have him anymore yep. <laughs> if you can you're gonna have to do a lot of work to get him back and also i put him on a team underneath rocket raccoon so 
with a little kid and <laughs> James Gunn's brother. And a dog. And a dog. <laughs> and Giant Groot. Ben, how many... Yes, Giant Groot. Giant Groot was great. How many... Weird that Groot... I guess that he just so thoroughly told a Groot story in the first one. We are Groot. Like that puts a cap on Groot emotion for all time. And then the second one, you had baby Groot. Everybody loves But There's just nothing nowhere further to go. Like Groot gets nothing to do in this movie. It's like, fine. Yeah, for like a long shambling movie that gives everybody lots to do, it was just weird how sidelined. I mean, I, I could care less, believe me. I'm just observing. It was kind of interesting that one of the most beloved characters in Marvel didn't get it. He gets cool powers. Like he gets to do things like he can do more fun, cool things than he's ever done before. And yeah, Gamora's joke of she, she just hears him say, I am Groot was kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And Uh, then the, we all get to hear what everybody else hears when he talks at the end was a nice little touch. I thought. I didn't like that. I liked it. I thought it was, a part of the sweetness at the end. It was, you're now in and part of the family, guys. I mean, I get it. I get, there's no reason, particular reason for me not to like it. I guess it was just a, like, eh, I'm not that easy of a touch. Come on, James Gunn. You got to work a little harder. You at least set this up a little more. I don't know. Mm, Nathan the Snob. Okay, Ben, how but many? But he did set it up, right? In the moment that you Yeah, said. I know. I know. It's all there. It's all, in the, it's all on the page. I don't know. It's great. I love it. Shut up. <laughs> Perfect movie. Ben, how many, what's a unit of thing in this movie? How many beautifully broken lost souls out of 14 do you give to Guardians of the Galaxy? Not part three, but volume three. I'll give it what I think I'll give it in like a month, which is 11. Okay. So like right now you're like. I'm closer to 12 or maybe 13, but I think that that's actually, my feeling is that in a month I'll think. I'm not sure. Yeah, and then I wonder I if guess that's how I feel. two years we're down to like a eight or a six well, or something. I but, don't know. It's really I, hard to tell. I, I don't even resent that at all any more than I resent the first Avenger being a terrible movie I don't want to go back to now. The first Avengers movie. First Avengers movie was great at the time. It's just what it needed to be. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I don't know. People overrate the importance of, as I've said before, of movies being made to I should probably just give it a 12. I'm going to give it a 12 out of 14. Okay. Jake, yeah. same question? Well, I was anticipating Ben doing what he did, but giving it a 10, so I could give it an 11. Now you're going to have to give it a 13. That's pretty high. I don't know. I think I have to, I think I'm going to stick with 11. Yeah. Wow. This is a, this does not usually happen. So you're lower than Ben. Wow. Wait, what did you do? Yeah, you did I, did, I did 12. I went ahead and did 12. Okay. Yeah. So. So, wow. Where does that leave me? My choice is to either, like, obviously I need to get the best of you guys somehow in a contest that only exists inside my broken, sad brain. So the ways to do that are to give it 14. <laughs> I think that's what we cornered you into. Or to yeah, give it to, like to six. six or something. Yeah. But man, it wasn't a sixer. All right, 14. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Yay. A perfect we, movie. I, I think we win, <laughs> I guess we do. Maybe everyone loses, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> I will say my experience of it, 14. I mean, I I had a good time at this movie. It was, I was really enjoying it the whole time in a way that rarely happens anymore for this kind of a film. Well, it is also a movie that lived with me. Yeah, and it's been fun to think about. I actually got emotional about it after the fact, which I can't. Same for me. 
I was thinking it through actually as I was texting you about it mm. and several hours later and I got that pretty emotional just sort of reconstructing it, thinking about how it worked and maybe processing some of my hopes for Superman. Yeah, I think it's that's yeah. hard not to do. I suspect that this... <coughs> my prediction is that this movie is a nine, like ultimately where it lives, like 10 years from now, we'll look back and say... Mm-hmm. Nine out of 14. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be like a six or anything. I don't think we'll no. ever like actively resent this or anything, but I think it's probably shot its shot. It certainly... In context, the context is our expectations for an MCU movie at this point and our expectations for a James Gunn movie. Yeah, I mean, if we hate him because he thoroughly makes the DCU degenerate and weird and terrible. And if he craps all over Superman, we will come back and we'll be like, it was all here in Guardians 3 and we should have seen it all along a lame shambling arbitrary story and uh, yeah exactly so there's a lot if you're just looking at this movie with your rational glasses on there's a lot to question but yep experientially it actually was a 14 i really enjoyed this movie i give it a yeah 12 or 13 for me experientially yeah it was i loved it yeah i felt on guard against completely loving it but that seems to be a thing that I often do. Well, like I said, I actually was. And then about halfway through, I had a conscious thought, you know what? I can relax. I'm in good hands. Yeah. That's well. And that's how I felt in, in the movie. That's how I felt coming out of the movie. And that's how I feel about Superman. Yeah. I feel like I trust James Gunn and I trust him with my beloved Superman. All right. So a rare 14 broken souls for me. I think we got 12 broken souls for Ben. It's like we're in some fantasy movie where we hunt down. <laughs> and then Jake's like, I love this movie more than all of you. I'll give it the lowest rating. <laughs> <laughs> I respect this movie more than all of you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't love you, but I do respect you. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Jake, the champion of the common man. Me, the champion of the it's uncommon not. man. And Ben. I'm in my own world. Yeah, ben, the champion of Ben. <laughs> we all suck. <laughs> I hate us all. <laughs> We're going to get a happy uh, ending anyway, yep. even if it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and our happy ending is going to lunch. Goodbye, listener. Until next time. It's not the hands that make us. It's the hands behind the hands. And you can help make our podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. Be the hands behind the hands, guys. <laughs> patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. Bye.